0: three four Evening.
2: Welcome to the projection booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary, and joining me, of course, my co host and the man with the connection and the plans, Mr. Mike White.
3: I'm searching for my main line, I couldn't hit it sideways.
2: And joining us this week from the Feminine Critique is Miss Emily Intravia.
4: I'm going to be on television.
2: Nice. This week we're talking about Darren Aronofsky's sophomore film 2000's Requiem for a Dream, an adaptation of the novel by Hubert Selby Jr. that tells the tale of four main characters, Harry, played by Jared Leto, his girlfriend Marion, played by Jennifer Connelly, his friend Tyrone, played by Marlon Wayans, and Harry's mother Sarah, played by Ellen Burstyn. Our four main characters each have hopes of better things, but addiction in the form of substances such as food, heroin, and even TV causes their lives to spiral out of control and their dreams to die painful deaths. So as you can tell, this is light children's fair up there with like Solo. So, uh, And of course, you can check that out at projection-booth.com. And uh, we will be getting into spoilers. So we will be talking about the ending and all of that fun stuff. So if you haven't seen Requiem for a Dream and uh, you feel like traumatizing yourself, feel free to uh, stop the podcast, take a look, and uh, come back and join. Join us, because it's all big fun. Now, Emily is our guest. When was the first time you saw Requiem for a Dream, and what did you think?
4: I believe it would have been late 2000 or sometime in 2001. It was right when it hit video. And I say video, and as I say that, this was probably one of the last movies I rented on VHS. I distinctly remember it being a fat tape that I put into a thing called a VCR. I don't know if they the kids today know what these are. Uh, but so it was shortly I didn't see it in the theater I saw it right when it came on video I remember really wanting to see it Because I had seen Pi on video and, be, and then all of a sudden Now there's he made another movie And it's with Sarah from Labyrinth uh, So I was excited to see what she was doing in life um, And weirdly enough That was I think the last time I watched it Until this week I had always remembered it It always stuck with me Whenever I would kind of in my head Make lists of kind of non-horror, horror movies, or that, you know, very disturbing things you only want to see once, this one always kind of came up. Um, but then rewatching it this week, I realized I kind of remembered everything
3: about it.
2: What about you, Mr. Mike?
3: I didn't see this one until maybe, maybe like a year ago, I guess. Um, I had heard Fantastic. Fantastic things about this movie. I had also seen Pie. Luckily, I saw that one in the theater when it was out playing at the main art theater. You might have been working there at the time, Rob. I'm not sure. But, uh, loved Pie, but for some reason, I stayed away from Requiem for a Dream, I think because of it having a drug theme, and I just usually have problems with drug movies, especially movies like Oliver Stone's The Doors, where you get people that act drunk and high all the time, and it's like, After a while, I either get really sick of seeing people like that on screen, or I just get really jealous and kind of want what they have. And so I stayed away from this. I don't know what possessed me to finally watch this. Maybe it was because of, uh, I think what it was, was that I was introducing um, Ellen Ellen DeGeneres. Ellen Burstyn at the Blue Water Film Festival last year, and I wanted to catch up on this and because I heard it was such a fantastic performance. It felt like a kick in the gut. Uh, it's not one of those movies that I'm going to want to go back to anytime soon, though I ended up watching it a few times for preparation for the podcast. So thank you, Rob. You're I welcome.
4: how distracted I am now imagining this movie recast with Ellen DeGeneres. <laughs> <laughs>
3: she's dancing around it's, you know she's got it's the rumble pretty
4: awesome i'm not gonna lie
2: as for myself i saw this when it played at the main art theater when i was working there in 2000 and um, one little marketing tie-in that was probably not a good choice was matchbooks huh. for this movie <laughs> Iris, just feels i mean it's like a
4: bad idea for anything nowadays when you can't yeah. actually light anything indoors.
2: <laughs> I just remember matchbooks for this thing, but um I remember seeing it like I said at the Main Art Theater when I was working there and was completely blown away by it. It is just uh, a magnificent film in terms of the acting and the direction and the editing and like everything that goes into this thing. And I've just was amazed by it. But I have a good story that my former manager and good friend, uh, Shane, who used to work at the main art, said, you have to tell this story because it's so good uh, about this movie and the expectations of people who came to see it. So she wrote this to me, and she says, uh, here's the story. She goes, three older white women, mid to late 50s, early 60s, come in to see Requiem uh, the, on its third go-around at the main. This is right after the Oscars. Uh, even though they didn't look like uh, anyone you would think who would want to go in and see it, they did buy 1 p.m. matinee ticket. They go in, and uh, they come out at the end, and they're looking shell-shocked. So I went up and had to say something to them, and I was like, is everything okay, ladies? With no anger, you know, nothing like that. And they say um, um, they they were confused, uh, horror, downright distaste, uh, but they didn't ask for a refund. And finally, Shane said, um, well, you know, I don't want to – offend you or judge you, but uh, you don't really fit the profile of the people who would come to see this movie. Uh, So I may ask, why did you choose to see it? And one of them replies that our choir director recommended it. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like, what? I have to ask, uh, why did they recommend it to you? And one of the other ladies says, well, we really like cello music.
4: That's (laughs) fair. It's not always easy to find a movie with a good cello score. No. Oddly enough, my husband, when he saw Black Swan, something similar happened. Uh, he went to see Black Swan in the theater, and in walked in a group of like little girls who were clearly coming from ballet class, and <laughs> I guess their teacher or mother thought, well, this would be a good like Sunday viewing, and I think they stayed throughout the whole movie, but I, I like to imagine how they've grown up.
1: <laughs> oh,
2: Darren Aronofsky.
4: <laughs> you with your misleading titles.
2: Getting into the plot, the movie starts uh, just basically like a blast right right from the f- go. Um, the first thing you hear is the, uh, the, the voice of someone you'll hear during our interviews, Christopher McDonald, as the motivational speaker Tappy Tibbins on TV talking about we've got a winner and introducing you to his motivational seminar infomercial that will play a part throughout the film and all of a sudden it gets cut off as the tv gets unplugged and there's a battle between harry and sarah as she locks herself in the closet as harry takes the um, tv away and we get the impression that um this has happened quite often where he'll show up and take the tv so that he can uh, get a couple of bucks
4: yes and can i say tappy tibbins would make a great kitten name
2: <laughs> it's a perfect kitten name
4: yeah definitely
2: well, according to the uh, audio commentary, Darren Aronofsky says that that name and sort of this character was created for a film that he had written before Pi of a guy who was a Carney barker and motivational speaker that was based sort of on the uh, Tony Robbins and those kind of people who were around doing motivational seminars.
3: I want to see that movie. This is also right around the time that we get our first split screen in the film. And Requiem for a Dream is just rife With so many visual, I don't know, trick shots, if you want to call them, or just interesting ways of telling a story, ways of reimagining the kind of grammar of film and utilizing it in such an interesting way. And this is the first one, and it's great that we not only have split screens that are, uh, you know, split. Uh, vertically, but we also get a horizontal split screen later, and just so many interesting ways that the cameras use, the editing, all this kind of stuff, and this was like the first instance of that, and we're going to get so much more of that as we go throughout this film.
2: I mean, Brian De Palma probably saw this and said, oh man, those are more (laughs) uses of split screens than even me.
4: (laughs) I never thought about them being in the same exact scene
3: doing it. Oh man, yeah. (laughs)
2: <laughs> and not only that, but also the use of sound in this film is great. And this is the first part in this first scene between uh, Jared Leto and Ellen Burson where we first get a use of sound as a cue. And the first time I saw it, I don't think I I realized it. It took a couple of times to really to really understand what was going on in the background of this scene. And what you hear – and this would be familiar if you know classical music – is whenever you go see a symphony, before they get going, there's always the tune up where the, the, the string section will will tune amongst themselves and it sounds kind of sounds kind of funny. And you hear that with the Kronos quartet in over this scene where they're they're tuning and it's pushed into the background of this scene, and I think that in a lot of ways sort of helps to build this idea of the film and, of course, the soundtrack as a Requiem.
3: For those who didn't grow up watching Amadeus like I did, a Requiem, just so folks know, is kind of this final... Song in a person's life. There are so many different steps. You know, we've we've talked about the whole idea of the different steps in a person's life when it comes to like a, a the Catholic ceremonies, the baptism, the communion, all these things. There is a requiem mass that is supposed to be played, and a, and a mass that is supposed to be held when a person has died. So this whole idea of a requiem is that final thing, the final song, and really this whole film can act as, on its own, just as a musical piece, and the way that music is tied to the picture and the way that we have these themes coming back in over and over again. And I know Aronofsky and, and his composer, Clint Mansell has, had listened to a lot of different requiems and exposed the Kronos Quartet to these you know things and said, we like this part, we like this part and just kind of worked with them to say, you know, these are the requiems that we want as kind of the basis for what we're doing here. And really the way that the film is paced and the way that the, the music builds and builds they just go hand in hand with one another and that's one of the things about Aronofsky that either I love or drives me crazy or since it drives me crazy I love it is that his films are so hypnotic man they just will grab you and take you into this other world and even watching this on home video I was completely transported. Seeing something like Black Swan in a theater or Pi in a theater, I was taken to another place. And just that he has that mastery of the language of film, of all the aspects of it, not just visual, but also the audible, and working with Manzel, who has been around for a long, long time and has a real control of this stuff as well, it just blows my mind. And it is just, it is just—it it's like you literally it's like you're taken on a ride you know it's like you're you're strapped into a roller coaster and sometimes that's not necessarily a good thing because maybe you don't like the ride but and requiem for a dream is one hell of a ride but man he definitely takes you someplace Yeah, if
4: you're not in the emotional place to kind of sit down and watch this it you have to turn it off very quickly Oh yeah! And even it was funny because watching it this time, I turn it on first. I have my computer open because I'm thinking, okay, I might take some notes as I watch it. And initially, I, I had that kind of quick, oh man, it's there's so many, there's so much technique going on that if I start trying to pay attention to that and start looking at the shots and this, it's there's so much to it that it becomes a very technical experience and you, and you can't watch it that way. You can't experience this film that way. And sometimes I can be very, if I'm not in the zone for that kind of movie, I just can get really annoyed by what feels like kind of theater tricks. But within five minutes, I'd kind of forgotten to pay attention to all of these cuts and sound. And I was just, before I knew it, I was watching the movie and not thinking in that kind of film language way anymore. It just, it, it gets you even if you're tr- not trying to let it get you.
2: In this opening this is all before the credits the The line we get right before the credits before um, right when Harry leaves the house with the TV is Sarah in the closet saying
0: This isn't happening and if it should be happening it would be alright so don't worry Seymour it'll all work out You'll see already. In the end, it's all night.
2: And when the credit for the film starts, we see the title. It comes down, and we hear his jail door sound. <laughs> and they're carting the TV off. It's it's Harry and Tyrone, and they're it's on a it's on a roller. So they're they're rolling this TV cart through Coney Island, and that's where everything takes places. And Coney Island section of Brooklyn and they get to where they're going and we start to get all the credits. And then we hear that sound again. We hear that jail cell jail door sound again at the title card for summer. And the film is broken into three seasons. There's summer, fall and winter. And that's basically your three act Structure in in many ways, and what each one kind of represents in terms of how the characters go through and and what happens to them in each section. And it feels like they keep going to the same pawnbroker all the time. As a matter of fact, uh, a little bit later, he's got this book and it's got all the dates of when he's taken in the TV, and then Sarah goes and picks the TV back up from the pawnbroker, Mr. Rabinowitz, played by Mark Margolis. Mrs. Goldfarb, can I ask you a question? You won't take it personal.
5: How many years we know each other? Who's to count? Why don't you tell already the police maybe they could talk to Harry? He wouldn't be stealing no more the TV. Mr. Rabinowitz,
0: I couldn't do that. Harry's my only child. He's all I have.
2: Thank you, Mr. Rabinowitz. And out of that is when we get the first of, I think, about 10 of these quote-unquote hip-hop montages which are used to sort of show the um the use of the of the drug of choice for that particular character.
3: And I love that as we go along, those montages change and sometimes they're used as bridging scenes going from one character to another character. It's just such again a very clever use of uh, montage and just the the editing of this again very very hypnotic and keeps you going and they're almost like little I don't know um, visual stings you know just as you're going along you you the the narrative is interrupted by these but they serve a purpose it's not like we're cutting away to something that's completely superfluous these are part of the story and they're just as much as part of the story as any part of dialogue any bit of scenery any of that kind of stuff you're learning so much as you go along and this this film is just so visually rich
2: and i was thinking about if you did it in a traditional manner instead of these short bursts which last you know 10 seconds but probably have 20 cuts in them in order to bring across this idea of the drugs and and what happens to someone from you know needing their fix to getting their fix i think that in any traditional film it probably would have ended up being a 3 minute to 4 minute scene or something they would have had to come up with some sort of particular way to show someone you know being all edgy and then they finally you know put the stuff on the spoon and light it and, you know, put it in the syringe and then they're, you know, on the couch lock or whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of other drug related movies where they, um, where they have a similar kind of scene to show that, but I don't think you could do it as well as a they lot do. To,
4: to do, right. You have to light the thing and, fold the thing there's all things involved i i haven't done heavy drugs i don't know these things but when you see it like there's so much i guess traffic is the first one that comes to mind and i remember when they would i guess with that they're doing what crystal meth but there's there's so much technique to it that i think to actually show it would take a lot of time
3: oh yeah definitely yeah what comes to my mind is train spotting and pulp fiction and Especially in Pulp Fiction, I seem to remember that taking quite a while to see all the different steps that are involved, and even with some of that, I think we might have like kind of skipped some steps or something. But like even reading some of these books and everything, just you know, okay, yeah, you you heat the thing and it melts, and there's like cotton involved, and the way that you put the the spike into your vein and all the, and I'm just like, oh my god, it's, yeah, it's kind of so impressive involved.
4: that people can do that when they're that, uh, you know. When, yeah. when they were, they're actually on drugs, come to think of it. I mean, I, I have trouble tying could, my shoes.
3: we could have them do, like, long-form division at the same time. Oh, right? <laughs> have
4: them balance my checkbook or do my taxes while right. they're at
2: it. Well, there's, there's that line that I love in John Waters' Cecil Be Demented, where the Adrian Grenier character uh, is asked why he's become a drug addict. And, you know, because it's so lame to be a drug addict. And he goes, you know, before I had drugs, I had all these problems. Now I only have one. Very good point. So if that's your only thing, which later becomes true for them, then that's all that matters.
4: (laughs) It's a one good way to consolidate, I guess.
2: It's around this time where we're introduced. We've already been introduced to Sarah, Harry, and Tyrone a little bit. And we get into the uh, relationship between Harry and Marion. And this is where we start to understand some of the drives of the individual characters and what their, I guess, their individual dreams are or their individual goals are within the film and what they're trying to accomplish.
3: And I love that people literally have dreams in this film. I mean, there are these little breaks that we have where it's like people kind of returning to what makes them happy or these little fantasy places. Like Tyrone is constantly going back to I, basically i would assume that it's his mother and then we have um i don't know if if uh harry and marion kind of share the same dream this whole coney island thing being out at the 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 um i don't want to say the dock the the boardwalk and this beautiful day and that's kind of like the recurring thing and then of course sarah her whole thing is uh being on television and and just the glamour involved with that. And just that they all have their little happy places that they're never able to get to through the drugs.
2: Marion also wants to, and this I it's kinda hard to tell if it's her idea or if it's Harry pushing her towards it, in that we learn that her family's in the garment business and she does fashion designing. And then he's like, Well, we should open a store and you should sell your clothes and, and all of that stuff. So at one point they Want to get this big score of heroin so that they can cut it up, sell it, use that money to open up their business. When I look at Sarah's interest in being on TV, to me, I think it goes to that amazing monologue that's later in the film. <laughs> so good. In, in which um, Ellen does an amazing job basically laying out how she doesn't have anything. Um, she's old and she – She's trying to reach out to her son, who's her only kid. But you get the feeling that there's something between them that they can't—they can't quite connect. As well as um, I think both of them really want to. It's like there's something there that keeps them from—that keeps them both at distance from each other.
0: I'm gonna be on television. I got a call and an application. And-
6: Come on, ma. Who's pulling your leg?
0: No, 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 I'm telling you, I'm going to be a contestant on television. I don't know when yet, they haven't told me when yet, but you'll see how proud you are when you see your mother in a red dress, uh, television and golden shoes. What is the big deal about being on television? Those pills you take are taking kill you before you ever get on, for Christ's sake. Big deal? You drove up in a cab. Did you see who had the best seat? I'm somebody now, Harry? Everybody likes me. Soon, millions of people will see me and they'll all like me. I'll tell them about you, your father, how good he was to us. Remember? It's a reason to get up in the morning. It's a reason to lose weight, to fit in a red dress. It's a reason to smile. It makes tomorrow all right. What have I got, Harry? Hmm? Why should I even make the bed or wash the dishes? I do them. But why should I? I'm alone. Your father's gone. You're gone. I got no one to care for. What have I got, Harry? I'm lonely. I'm old. You got friends, Ma? Uh, It's not the same. They don't need me. I like the way I feel. (laughs) I like thinking about the red dress and the television and you and your father. Now when I get the sun, I smile.
3: Well, I love that scene. There's so much stuff going on in that scene. And again, going back to the use of the camera, like with the way that everything is being shot from one side And then we kind of cross the 180 degree line in a beautiful camera move and come over to the other side of Harry when he hears Sarah grinding her teeth. And that's the moment that he realizes that something isn't right with his mother. And then everything from that is told from the other side of Harry and the other side of Sarah so that. Beautiful, beautiful camera move, just kind of demonstrating that things have flipped in this whole relationship, and now he's not the only addict.
4: Yeah, and the I think what you said before about them wanting to connect but not, its it's evident in a lot of places, because not just there, but when uh Harry's talking about uh he wants to do something for his mom he wants to get her a TV which is actually a really nice thing because but that's like all he knows about her is that well she watches TV um and it it is nice i'm sure she appreciates it we see her watching it later but there's something that well he he would have gone there to see her at that point just that he he knows something is up and it's that that divide if he wants to help her but he really has no idea how to and it's he he's not quite a good enough person to really figure out how well
3: it goes all the way back to that first scene of them where they're separated by a closet door and also separated, you know, by the split screen that we had and they never really connect. We never get those two. And then when if correct me if i'm wrong when after that scene that we're talking about where he kind of realizes that she's on speed and diet pills and he says, I'll be back, and I'll bring Marion with me and all this stuff. That's the last time he sees her, right?
4: So far as we know in the movie. I right. don't know if there was ever a deleted scene. but
2: I think that's basically the end of them interacting within this story, yeah. But the um, but that's the reason why, as you were saying, she becomes a speed freak is that she receives this phone call telling her that she's been selected to be on this TV program, which she's constantly watching throughout the film and is used as a device and as a bookend device throughout the film, and she decides that she wants to get back into the dress that she wore to his graduation probably, what, less than 10 years ago. I, I'm willing to bet that Jared Leto's character is probably in his mid-late 20s, maybe. I don't know, maybe five years earlier or something like that. So so she starts putting herself through this regimen of you know, trying to go on this diet, but that becomes too hard and, you know, she has a really small role in here, um, but she does a really nice job as Louise Lasser as well, as her friend who lives also in the building.
4: Yeah, the culture of these retired Jewish Brooklyn women is kind of horrifying. Yeah. (laughs) Just the idea of that, that is and, I mean, that's a big part of when she's saying, you know, this is my life, I have nothing, and we see, like, she has friends, but they all, it's They're friends just by the whole we live together and we sit here and suntan together, that they're all kind of in the same boat, but probably not able to connect to each other very well.
3: And just that whole idea of... The Yentas sitting out on the stoop and all trying to fight for the sun and the best place in the sun and everything. That could have been really bad. And the accents that they do, this kind of older Jewish women accent, I mean, it could have been done so horribly in the hands of anybody else. I mean, but you have some amazing actors in here and some of the best actors, really. And, of course, Ellen Burstyn just... Yes, good. I said the right name. She handles it you know beautifully and doesn't slather it on. you know she, she is a
4: she- goddess. Oh, she's
3: amazing. She is so hypnotic to watch in this film and to see her transformation from beginning to end and just see the way that she breaks down through this film. She is riveting. And again, you have these two main stories going on. The one that she basically holds together completely and then one with the other three characters. And yes, she does get some help from Louise Lasser and from Christopher McDonald and everything. But she is just the star of this other movie, and she is just amazing. And in the hands of another actress, in the hands of another director, it could have been a disaster, but it was just handled perfectly.
4: I don't know if I'm the only one that feels that way. I might have preferred a movie that was just about her. I I could have taken a... I mean, this movie is uh, just barely 100 minutes. I could have taken a two-and-a-half-hour movie about Sarah Goldfarb, and I would have been happy.
3: I can see that. But I think they also did a really good job as far as knowing when to go back and forth between the two. And that was the thing I was referring to earlier with those those hip-hop montages that Rob mentioned, is sometimes they will go from the heroin that the the younger kids are doing right into the diet pills and the coffee and everything and right into Sarah. And I love the way that they make those transitions so quickly between them and just have that whole parallel between the hard drugs and then the accepted drugs of television, caffeine. Yeah, you can
4: understand and that, I think, is why this movie works so well for me. I don't have experience with heroin, uh, I but I can understand anybody getting hooked on diet pills or just getting hooked on dieting. It's, oh yeah, you know, I'm a woman. I've grown up overweight. I've seen many women go to extremes for this, and it is so believable how quickly one could kind of fall into that trap. And you believe you can totally see the whole time why she believes this is the right thing. And, you know, she's to her, she's looking better. And for a while she is, you know, she fits in the dress and then the dress gets too big on her. But you can it is so easy to find an in with Sarah in this movie in a way that I think, whereas, you know, if I compare it to Train Spotting, it's much harder for me to really kind of. Uh, I guess empathize versus sympathize with what's going on. I can't put myself in those shoes because I don't see myself ever getting that extreme, but I can understand somebody taking too many diet pills.
3: Personally, I would like to have a prescription for those diet pills.
4: Oh, right? (laughs) I mean, they really did wonders on her.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: I had a similar situation four years ago, five years ago, when uh, at the time I was on uh, psychiatric medication and they prescribed Adderall. Now, for those who are not familiar with Adderall, it's basically speed. And it was great for like the first month. Um, I lost a bunch of weight. I was very focused um, and all of that stuff. And then I had the same problem she had in the film where she's taking the pills, but they're not doing anything anymore because your body gets acclimated to them. And at that point, you either have to go one or two routes, you either have to like kind of stop taking them, or you have to keep upping your dose in order to get the same level as before. And that's when I said, yeah, I'm going to back away from this, because I don't think it's good that I keep taking these. <laughs> so, um, so I didn't end up uh, on the route that she did, where she was like, okay, well, if one pill isn't doing it, maybe two, three, maybe four will get me there. And um, that becomes her downfall.
3: Well, it's that whole train that like Elvis was on, you know, the uppers to get started in the morning, the downers to go to sleep at night and just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, which just must be one hell of a ride.
4: And it's very, if you think of Aronofsky's other films, both Black Swan and The Wrestler have I mean a ballerina and a uh, pro wrestler go through a very similar regiment where they are putting their bodies to extremes in different ways. It affects their diet, it affects medications, and it you know there is no way to come out from that on the winning side in the end. Eventually, that will catch up with you. And it's interesting and- that to really see that, he, like I guess to see in all these films that connection that he's really both interested in and really good at conveying.
2: And for me, the red dress is more than just looking good for her. The red dress kind of becomes a symbol of a past when she wasn't a widow of a time when she probably felt more connected to her son because he was in high school or just graduating from high school. So To me, the red dress also is this symbolism of being a um, a better time of, you know, her feeling nostalgic for something that has passed. And she appears to have not been able to transition well to her son growing up and also uh, the death of her husband.
3: I want to say that in the book, it's the dress that she wore to his bar mitzvah, which would have placed it another five years previous to that. But I won't swear to it.
4: How old is she supposed to be? I was trying to figure this out, because even if uh if Harry is, let's say, thirty, which I think is he's not, I think he's younger, it seems like she just when I watching it now, thinking about it, to me she should be much younger than I think she is in the movie.
3: Yeah, well if he's she can't say really he's be older 30. than
4: sixty, I guess.
3: Right. Well we'll say he's thirty. I don't see her having a kid any younger than 16 or any older than, let's say 25. So max 55 years old, which still seems, I mean, my wife's 53 this year. She's not nearly in the state that Sarah Goldfarb was in.
4: I hope few women are. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it, to me, it seems to be the, her whole, her whole dream about the dress and the TV and all that, and she says it in that monologue, it's, you know, it's a reason to get up in the morning. It's a reason to do things. It's, you know, you know what have I got? I've got nothing. You just get the feeling that you know she's not writing the great American novel. She's sitting around the apartment. She's hanging out on the stoop with her friends who also seem to live in the apartment. She's and, not playing
4: Candy Crush. It's before yeah, that time
2: yeah and you know the only thing that she's asking her son for which is cliche but i can understand why someone of her age would feel that way is when are you going to get married and have a kid because then i can have a grandkid to hang out with basically as the subtext yeah then so, there's that thing that
4: i can put all of my energy into because right now all i have is tv
2: yeah and it just kind of seems to that that Is her downfall, you know, by trying to focus on something that's a positive, meaning trying to get in better shape and maybe, you know, feel better about herself in some way ends up being a trap more than it ends up being some sort of liberation.
3: Well, that whole apartment is such a trap, you know, the she's just confined there so much. I mean, we barely see her outside of just that front stoop until the third act of the movie. Otherwise, she's stuck in that apartment or she's on the front stoop. Most of the time, she's in the apartment, which feels like a cell to me. And the way that it's lit, it's so dark inside of there. And so much of the lighting on her is the the lighting from the television set. So it's like, it's just unnatural the way that she's placed herself in this cell.
4: But it's probably rent controlled. So you can kind of understand.
3: Oh, Yeah. There's no way. I mean, yeah. If if it's rent controlled, yeah, it makes perfect sense to stay there. Of course.
4: Yeah, you're not leaving because anybody, everybody no. is trying to get in. Trust me.
3: Exactly.
2: So as summer goes on, uh, we get to the end of summer, which ends with um, Tyrone meeting with the dealers, and they all end up getting uh, shot, except for him.
3: I love that deaf dealer. Yeah.
2: Brody says you're coming up quick, kid.
3: <sighs> Thanks, man.
7: He says you're smart, you're loyal, and you're not a junkie. Brody wants to promote you. He wants to give you more responsibility. You interested?
8: Yeah, yeah. Shit, yeah, man.
0: i <laughs> you.
7: Brody says, you fuck him, I kill you. I got that. Remember that.
3: Oh, shit, you got a white driver. Just that kind of strangeness to have this deaf dealer who has to be translated by somebody else. Just it. Kind of reminds me of like one of those weird things like the the Asian guy who's throwing the fireworks in boogie nights or something, but this it kind of fits a little bit better, but it it just uh it seems to add another sense of irreality to the whole thing and it, but yet it makes perfect sense.
2: That's the transition from summer to fall, and this is where we get the first use of our, of our old pal, the Snorri cam, who um, if you want us to hear more, you want to hear us talk more about snorri cam use, uh, you can listen to our second episode because there's a lot of it in that. And he's uh, running away from the scene of these guys who get shot in this limo, and he ends up getting uh, picked up by the cops.
3: I think everybody gets one turn with the cam in the film, if memory serves, as far as our four main characters. So it's interesting to see when that comes up for which character.
2: The only one who didn't is uh, Harry. and I Harry doesn't
3: that, get a cam. No, I realized it oh, on
2: this recent viewing, and I listened to the commentary, and Aronofsky said that he wanted to do one, and he had a plan for that scene, but they ran out of time and money, and they didn't do it.
3: And he wasn't going to tell you because he wants to use it in another film.
2: Yeah, that's what he said. Now I remember. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Because he said
2: it was related to something. And yeah, that was all he said. So, yeah, this is where uh, things start to break down. And fall is where things start to break down. The pills aren't working anymore. They're trying to keep scraping along with their deals, but they're not. They're running out of money. They're using way too much compared to what they're
3: selling. Yeah, and that nice. It's so many repeated images, shots, songs, moments, all these different things, which just helps add to that rhythm that I was talking about and that whole hypnotic pace of the film. Seeing the money go into the box, seeing the money come out of the box. Opening and it the just, door
4: and there being a lot less money there.
3: Exactly. Yeah. Just those repeated images. And I think one of the things... That I really picked up on with this last viewing of it was just how many times we see uh, mirrors and how many times we, I think Tyrone at one point even says like, oh yeah, I got these great new mirrors or something. And people are constantly looking at themselves and You know, checking themselves out and maybe not necessarily liking what they're seeing, but that whole idea of the doubling and everything and getting the repeated scenes, repeated dialogue. I mean, the Tappy Tippin's thing is another thing where it's just like, oh, man, I hear him talk about those steps so often as I'm watching the film, the last, uh, the time before last, rather than watching the film I listened to the film and just to pick up on every time he kind of comes back onto the soundtrack and like, oh you're not going to like it just over and over again, you know, it's like wow, that's just again builds that hypnotic pace to it
7: Three things is all I did to change my life Three things No no friends about it. What do they stick in? Red meat. I ate red meat. I ate red meat to the point where I would eat it slab right off raw. Love my meat. I turned it around. You need to be committed. You need to be passionate. No red meat. No red meat for 30 days. No red meat. Three things is all I did to change my life. Three
2: things. They're not going to like it. There's three things. There's three things you have to do 30 days in order to change your life. What are they?
3: Well, you'll hear the third one when we play that uh interview back with Christopher McDonald.
2: So it's no sugar, no red meat, and then the third one, which they never tell you in the film. You're not going to like it. You're not going to like it.
4: Were they going to were they ever going to tell you in the film? I don't think so. I don't
2: think so. No. It's one of those <laughs> it's one of those it's dangling fitting, pieces that are out there.
3: Oh yeah! Oh yeah! It Totally keeps you in high suspense, and it's that whole thing like everybody in this film is reaching for something that they can't get, and by cutting off Tappy, that is just yet another thing where it's like, sorry, can't tell you what that <laughs> we third tell part you what is. It
4: is. But nope,
3: nope, removed. And when you denied. find out what
4: it is, it's that really fitting that you shouldn't know.
3: Exactly,
2: and then there is this, I guess, kind of subplot. He only shows up twice in the film. But we get the feeling that Marion gets funded by her parents because she decides to go check in with a therapist. Like, her parents are concerned about her. This is even before all the heavy drug use. And they're willing to give her money as long as she goes to this therapist, who she doesn't like. She kind of finds the therapist kind of a, kind of a lecherous guy.
3: Repulsive, I believe, <laughs> is the word. And I mean, he is. Which is funny, since it's played by Sean Gillette, <laughs> who was the main character from Pie, and they just make him so skeezy in this film.
4: To go along with the you-can't-eat-red-meat, right, when every time we see him, he's just chewing on a rare steak.
3: Which is nice, too, talking about that mirroring thing. The first time we see them together, he's on the left-hand side of the screen, she's on the right, and the next time they're in complete opposite positions it's just like oh that's so nice that we get those kind of bookends like that
2: and not only that but we get here um with with her with uh, Jennifer Connelly's character we get these fantasy sequences like you were talking about like each character has either flashbacks to better times or they have what they'd like to do right now. And the first one we get of that is when Harry and Tyrone are at the little hot dog stand and the cop sits down next to them and they undo the cop's gun and they start playing, like come and get it with them, you know, like throwing the gun back and forth. And then you find out that it's all in their head. They're just thinking about it while they're sitting there completely stoned out of their minds. This one with her, she has – I think it's twice in the two meetings that she has with therapist where they go out to dinner. And I love this because in a lot of ways, it kind of mirrors in particular ways um, also Sarah going to the doctor where the doctor really isn't paying attention to her, doesn't look at her. He doesn't really interact with her. It's just he's just there to do something, just to transact. And it's much the same way with these situations with with Marion and the therapist where he's just busy eating and she's sitting there and I don't think she eats in either one and then she has these um she has these fantasies where she wants to scream at him or stab him with her fork because she <laughs> just hates him so much
4: and there's something to both of those scenes both the Sarah at the doctor and um Marion with her boyfriend slash psychiatrist where it feels like even though it's clear that the men aren't listening to the women, I feel like there's still, the movie is showing it a little more extreme than it is because when Sarah goes to the doctor, she's completely loony to anyone watching where she's talking about the refrigerator eating her. And we kind of see it as the doctor doesn't care. He's not listening, but it seems, I don't know, to me, I took it that there's some kind there's the film is exaggerating it a little bit to, I mean, if she was really saying those things at that volume, he would have to hear that. Right. Um, and it almost feels the same with, with the, uh, I'm getting confused with, cause Jennifer Connelly to me is always Sarah from Labyrinth. So I keep saying Sarah and thinking it's Jennifer Connelly. Um, but when Jennifer Connelly, when Marion is having dinner with the psychiatrist, it's that same where like, he has to know how much she hates him. Cause we can see it on her face. But maybe not. Maybe we're seeing more of her than we are seeing what's really going on. That kind of filter we have is the characters and not just reality.
3: Oh, yeah. It's very, very subjective. You know, as far as each time we see these characters, we are we have to be in their world and see things kind of through their eyes. So I think by seeing that look of just utter disdain upon her face. That's her inner self coming out, and we're just supposed to be privy to that. It's very much that kind of look. And, you know, it's kind of like, sorry to go back all the way to the beginning, but just with that, uh, the closet scene, I mean, you're really, you're you're with both of those people. Having that split screen is showing us both of those characters, and keeping us with both of them, one of the few times that we're going to get that kind of thing, where as opposed to other scenes, we're so much with that character. And I, I guess, too, the, the use of the snorri cam keeps us centered with them. They're perfectly fine while, while the world around them is going absolutely mad.
2: It is that, and also the movie, as you said, is very subjective. I also find it to be very expressionistic, but not in the traditional sense and and what i mean by that is when we think of expressionism it's always that post world war 1 heavy shadow kind of thing Caligari. Yeah, yeah that very you know tilted angles kind of thing and there's some of that in here but it's not it, it's not as deliberate he's not um it's expressionistic but it's like to me like a new form of expressionism it's not like he stole all of this stuff or borrowed all of these great expressionistic ideas from you know, post-World War One and early German silent film and, you know, horror movies of the 30s and all of that stuff. Film noir and brought it to this. It's like he's sort of reinventing that idea of how do you do expressionism in, in a modern era and show us what these characters are, are thinking and feeling and paint the walls with it in a different way.
3: Well, I think, again, that's where that music really comes into play and just having – this building and repetitious soundtrack and just some of those songs, quote unquote, are more well, like the orchestra warming up. Or, you know, some of the the songs have bits of noise worked into them, the use of the sampling and all this kind of stuff. You know, you were talking about the the use of the um jail door clanging shut and you get these kind of noises and repeated things as you're going through. And I love like the the rumba when sarah's dancing around in her apartment and the way that the rumba kind of speeds up at one point it feels like somebody took their finger off of the uh record player sorry kids i know record players record players vcrs yeah i know god we're so old okay
2: (laughs) for those who don't know it used to be a thing where it looked like a dinner plate and it would play and there was a needle that picked up the sound, yeah. And then you could kind of move it back and forth. Uh, go Why watch. Are hip-hop. they
4: making a comeback? Isn't that like the cool thing kids listen oh, to now? Yeah. Like the headphones that are actual headphones and the or the tele- the rotary telephones. Kids love these things these days.
3: Oh yeah. yeah. Throwback Thursday, right? Yeah, yeah. I was just over in Williamsburg shopping for vinyl, so I got I got the new Beck album that way. Yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I think I had like a Sorry. Sesame Street album on record. That was exciting.
3: This
2: is my it's made out of pure uh, artisanal vinyl, hand pressed by um, by uh, fair trade people in Guatemala who do it for a living.
3: And it's gluten free. Gluten free. Oh yes,
2: yes, of yes. Of course, it's vegan.
4: I mean, we're in Brooklyn, right? That's right. Well, some
2: of well, this us is this is Coney Island. I mean, it's
4: you know, <laughs> that's
3: true. I, I kept waiting for the there, Warriors literally. to come out. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, so yes, the subjective sound so something like the the record speeding up when she's dancing around and these kind of things. Just I think that of course he's usually using visual expressionism in a lot of ways, but I think that he's definitely using music and editing to to tell these stories as well in that expressionistic way that you're talking about Rob
2: well especially in those montages to a certain extent those montages um, they only last so long but there's so many different sounds in there that it's almost like you could sit there for hours and break down what he's using or try to figure out what he's using much the same way that I think um, Scorsese used in raging bull with like animal noises and growls slowed down and sped up in the boxing scenes. You, you, I mean, I definitely know that there's like airplanes taking off. There's gunshots. There's all kinds of things that are used in those montages to really jar you and also give you a sense of this sort of auditory world that he's elevating um, he, he's elevating that world through the use of these big sounds
4: He I mean the movie makes you feel a little bit like you're on drugs which I'm sure is what he was going for and it's the kind of thing that many movies try to do and I think most of them do it visually you know they'll give you a tie eyed background or spin the camera around but it really is the kind of full sensory uh orchestrations that he's doing in both visuals and sound that it's the reason why this one actually does by the time you're done with it you do feel as if your body has been through something
3: Yeah, the use of sound, like in something... There's a song on the soundtrack called Southern Hospitality, and that repetition of things, like the guards looking at the mouth, and, you know, open your mouth, da-da-da, good for work. I mean, that's not on the the soundtrack album itself, but the music behind it is. And again, just that repetition, that hypnotic kind of thing, and just, yes, so many noises being used. And I think, you know... Back when Mansell was in like populate itself, I mean, they were so great at using samples and building soundscapes out of other people's work that it just um, it fits so well with what Aronofsky's doing here.
2: So let's pick up from where Marion's had these two different uh dinners with the therapist the first time with the therapist it's a check-in because she needs to in order to keep getting funded by her parents the second one is where they're running out of money and harry basically is willing to now pimp his girlfriend in order to get the money and she doesn't really want to do it but then agrees to go along with it and that to me is beyond marion's drug use getting out of hand that is like her point where that's the departure that's where it starts and that's where that's the turning where, point i would say yeah for her because
4: that's i mean she says there's kind of no going back from this it's this is what i'm going to have to do it, kind of expecting him to then say don't do it and he doesn't say anything because he, he has no other plan and it is from there on they can never love each other enough after betraying each other on and both of their ends
2: but even even before this happens we get the feeling that even within the the early scenes of their romance there is this division between them for and what really highlights it for me is where they have uh they're both in bed and they're looking at each other but they're in split screen and just that dividing line of the image of him on the left and her on the right and they're talking to each other and they're very sweet you know this is obviously like one can consider, okay, this is like post-sex, and they're like, oh, you know, they're kind of like playing with each other's hair, and they're looking at each other's eyes, and they're kind of talking to each other and all of this stuff. But there's still that dividing line right down the middle between them that we get the feeling that even at their most intimate moments together, they're still separated.
4: They have very different backgrounds, and there's, there is something – we don't know much about her. I think we know enough that she has probably very wealthy parents who at some point cut her off. And, you know, she says that her parents won't return her calls anymore. And so I think there is that she always had this cushion. And it, you know, it kind of made her this princess that he could, you know, I guess, feel as though he was saving. But also there was that kind of safety of, you know, but it's not like I have to provide for both of us yet. And as that goes away, it just becomes so much easier to, you know, not take care of one another anymore.
3: Yeah, that is such a telling Thing such a telling scene to have that line down there because obviously they're what like eight inches apart from one another would have been so easy to just frame them together but to do what they did just it's so telling and again it's that whole idea of each person is even though they're together they are kind of in their own story
2: and that scene's relatively early so I don't know if I picked up on that division idea the first time I saw it. I definitely picked up on it on subsequent viewings. And that's the thing that's also great about the film is that there's so many different little things in here that if you don't get it the first time and you go back and you see it again, then you'll pick up on more. And there seems to be like more levels of things specifically in the visuals and in the, and that soundtrack as we talked about with the, the use of sound and certain cues that are in the background.
3: Though I will say that the idea of watching this film a second time was just such a dreadful thing hanging (laughs) over my head. When you said, let's do Requiem for a Dream, I was like, oh God, I have to watch that film again. Just because it was such a gut punch. And yes, I get a lot more out of it every time I see it. And it is one of those things that I should be studying because it has such an effect on me. Why does it have an effect on me? Let's try to unravel this a little bit. But for God's sakes, it's just, it's so painful to watch.
4: At least it's fairly short, though. I had remembered this movie as being really long and heavy. And I think it's, I mean, it is a weighty movie. And I think it feels, it's the kind of thing, even even being 100 minutes, when it's over, you don't want to watch anything else. You're not going to turn on an episode of Seinfeld. It's... Just that weight of it But I think it's one of the things That I find makes it really powerful Is that There are so many filmmakers That just seem to refuse to make a movie Less than two hours And in this case you have uh, There was so much more that could have been Done Every character could have had Their story expanded I know there's a ton of deleted scenes Which makes me think that there were probably a lot of other Different threads going on but it gets in and out in such a way where it just punches you and goes. And I think it's really important that it has that perfectly timed running life.
2: And in the heaviest part, the, the hardest part to watch in this film is the winter section, which is basically the last 20 to 25 minutes, yeah. because this is where it all comes crashing down for the four of them. And not only does it all come crashing down, for them, the music becomes more emphatic, and he is, the the editing in this is so brilliant, between the four of them. And you had talked about this already in terms of using the montages and things like that. We end up with like um, visual echoes that get us from one place to the next in in the ending, in the last 20 minutes of the film. And it stacks so well um, that I don't see how like, like this is where, like you were talking about it being less than two hours, it's you know an hour and forty minutes. I think, in the hands of a lesser director and editor, this is the scene that would have been extended out because we would have followed one of them and then another one and then another one and another one, and then it would have been another twenty minutes on top of it, if you know what I mean it would have been oh, yeah. this whole thing yeah. wouldn't have been as compressed and and on top of each other as um as it is
4: I mean tyrone's. Thread at the end There's so little dialogue But visually they're showing everything That he's going through And you could very easily have Written a scene where he's in jail And he has to deal with the guard And this is his roommate and so on And it's so impressive How restrained it is that And I even wonder if I mean I've, I've never read the screenplay for it Or to see how many screenplay versions And what Aronofsky changed along the way but I just wonder if at one point there was a scene that kind of where there's actual dialogue of him in jail. Because there's so much to that, but you get everything in the way that montage is cut. Just, it's that whole showing, not telling. Oh, yeah. As they teach you in, you know, first year creative writing class.
3: It so reminds me of like, I don't know, the, the, the metaphor that comes to mind is like when you drop a marble down a funnel and the way that it you know takes a while to start to go down the funnel but then at the end it just seems to be circling faster and faster and faster just because there's less surface space this is what that's like to me just seeing them going around the drain fast 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 before they finally just drop in and just the pace of it is just you know you thought the things were bad before well here let's kick it up a notch, you know. Let's take the let's take the mu- the music up and active. Let's take it up, you know. Let's let's set it uh going at a faster pace. Let's turn the metronome faster. Let's go. Let's hit this thing, man. And it's so impressive to me. Like it's hilarious to know that Jay Rabinowitz, Benowitz the editor, like he does Aronofsky films. But then he also does, for the most part, he's the guy that Jim Jarmusch goes to. And talk about two different complete styles. I mean, Jarmusch is just so long takes and just, you know, like so... Uh, meditative and yeah like and... seeing something like Dead Man where it's just like you know you're going along for a long time and to know that that same guy who cut that picture can cut something like Requiem for a Dream it's like holy shit this guy's good
4: <laughs> remember back in the day when Darren Aronofsky was going to direct Batman
3: oh he was going to direct everything he, but, for I re- like they had
4: I think like they were ready to go before oh, yeah. Nolan came in And, oh, what a world we would have lived in.
3: Yeah, he was going to do... Year one, uh, he was going to do. Didn't he do something with that one of the uh, submarine movies, like Below or something? I can't remember which one. But he was attached to like a Lone Wolf and Cub remake, to the RoboCop remake. He was going the one that really kills me though. He was going to direct an adaptation of this book that I love a lot called Flicker. And the whole thing with Flicker is the way that images on screen can have hidden messages inside of them, and just the way that we kind of it's like a throwback to like the uh edgar ulmer i mean the 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 character the main character in the book is kind of a ulmer wells mix almost and just it's this whole movie about or whole book about making movies and i think aronofsky would have been just the perfect guy for that but yeah for a while he was attached to freaking everything man
2: we talk a little bit about his um possibility of year one with frank miller on our batman returns episode from back in december so if you're interested in that you can get a little bit more on that episode as well the winter i would say the the big introduction in the winter section is big tim played by keith david
0: you have a beautiful view you know what
2: i like
9: best about patty chick
2: they get good head
8: my <laughs> black Bros don't know nothing about no head i don't know why Maybe it has something to do with some ancient tribal custom.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and I would say that out of anyone in this film, although he is an exploitive person, at least he's the most honest exploitive person in the entire film. In that oh,
4: yeah, he, he makes an offer and he follows through on
3: it. When yeah, you go to Big Tim, you're there for one reason only, baby. <laughs>
2: That's right. You know, he doesn't mind uh, getting you what you need to get as long as uh, you get him what he needs, which is an obvious need for uh, the physical aspect, if you know what I mean. He is
4: a businessman.
3: Well, I like that Tyrone says very early in the film, he mentions Big Keith, and he's just like, that guy's, you know, and he's he is an addict as well, but he's addicted to pussy. And yeah. it's just like, okay, <laughs> everybody's got their foibles, exactly. and that's Big Tim's.
2: So that is basically the catalyst for Marion because Tyrone and Harry go off to Florida to get the big score that they're going to eventually bring back to New York. Harry's arm continues to get worse and gangrenous. And this is where he eventually Tyrone has to take Harry to the hospital. And that leads to the arrest of him. And at the same time, Sarah's breakdown mentally and being taken to the hospital after showing up at the TV Office and asking why she hasn't been called yet or why she hasn't received a letter as to when she's going to be on television. So these are the three. These are the four main stories that now, as I said, will be intercut over the next 20 minutes at the end of the film in such a jarring and gut punch to the face.
4: It makes me feel really bad for not tolerating crazy people on the subway. Like, next time they ask me where the TV studio is, I'm going to tell them. Do you
0: know if this train goes to Madison Avenue? Do you know Malin and Locke? I have their address. It's on Madison Avenue. I'm going to be on television. Whack!
3: How weird was it seeing Dylan Baker show up as that doctor? <gasps> yeah! I'm i have always happy to see him. Oh yeah, me too. Even if he's diddling kids. <laughs> he, does, he does it in
4: such a, a special way.
3: Oh, man. Yeah, just everything flies off the fucking rails in this last bit. And it just gets more and more intense. I mean, from every, every person's story just gets more and more out of control. And it just it boggles the mind to think about it.
2: The main aspects in here where we start to see visual through lines is the, the restraining of Sarah, the restraining of Harry in the bed. Uh, everyone gets something shoved into their mouth at some point, or I think Tyrone <laughs> pukes and is intercut. So Sarah gets this mouth bit cause they're going to give her ECT. Harry's got the mask over his face for the amputation of his arm. Tyrone's, upset and throwing up, and then Marion gets money shoved into her mouth at the sex party.
3: Oh, that sex party. Can we talk about the sex party? Can Let's we, talk can about we the not? sex party. What do you guys think happens when you go A to A?
4: Apparently, a lot of wealthy businessmen get really happy.
3: <laughs> it's a I have my I have my own image in my mind, and I was just curious if anyone wants to venture to see if what I have in my mind is what you guys think as well.
2: I have no idea what you're I, thinking.
4: I, I'm trying. Yeah, I'm. I'm seeing Cannibal Holocaust here, so I'm guessing it's not where you're going.
3: No. Okay. No, I'm sorry. That though that might be interesting. I mean,
4: if you get it at the wrong angle, then you kind of can have a Cannibal Holocaust thing going on.
3: So maybe we are thinking about it the same thing. It seems like we are. Okay. Who knew? All right. Who knew? Interesting. Okay yeah so yeah I guess I guess we are thinking the same thing, so I'm glad I'm not alone in that yeah
4: you go too far. it's gotta come out somewhere
3: and I have to say, and this sounds kind of sick, but I've never seen Jennifer Connolly look as pretty as she does when she is doing <laughs> ass to ass the the sweat, the makeup all that kind of stuff on her. She just looks gorgeous, and she normally looks really pretty normally, I don't like her looks, normally. Really? I want to thread her eyebrows, um, but for some reason in that scene, she just does it for me.
4: Yeah, well, this was right before she got really skinny too. Like she's she's okay, like she's she's a little skinny for, but it's not where she gets to beautiful mind where she just seemed to stop eating during the Oscar season. She took oh, some. Of, she took some of Sarah's uh, diet pills, and things got scary. I always thought. I mean, I also grew up loving Labyrinth, so I wanted to be her more than anything in the world. Which might be why I didn't wax my eyebrows for years. I don't know. Oh, there you go. Now that I think,
3: you wanted to see David Bowie with his his package right there. Uh,
4: it yes, there. Like, yes, I'm a woman. Of course, I did.
3: Hey, it's not just a woman. Thing. I
4: mean, come on. <laughs> Other girls my age wanted Jared Leto to, you know, do his Jordan Catalano thing. I wanted David Bowie to come back in his tights.
3: I was wondering how long we could go without a Jordan Catalano reference. I, I was so tempted early on.
4: I could never say his name right. I always either said Jordan Leto or Jared Catalano. Uh, and I'm probably <laughs> going to keep doing that from now on. Fair enough. But yeah, can you imagine what him and Jennifer Connelly's kids would look like? They would be so pretty. It would scare, it would be like humanity would die. <laughs>
3: Where you want to take us, Rob? Well, we talked after a little... you go ass to ass. Where <laughs> can you go? Where can you go <laughs> it's all
7: there?
2: it's all downhill from here. But um, the let, let's just you know we talked about the intensity of this last 20 minutes, but let's talk about some of the other visual connections. And I think the the one visual connection is the end of this sequence, which is all of them in bed. Uh, Mary and she's on a couch. But the rest of them are in beds. Sarah's in a hospital bed. Harry's in bed in the hospital, and Tyrone's in bed in uh, in prison. And then also, as I said, uh, Marion comes back from this you know party that she was at, and each of them kind of curls up in some way, like in the fetal position. So that's sort of a similar visual for each of them. And we get that echo again, as you were saying, with Tyrone thinking of his mother. This whole thing leads to the question of is there redemption for anyone? That that's the thing that I that I was wondering when when we look at our four characters at the end here. It's like, are they all doomed or is anyone in a position to turn it around after these, you know, horrific things?
4: Well they they've... kind of like they're all in different places where to um to Marion I, if memory serves, her, the last thing we see is her smiling. Like she's smiling because she has money, or not money. She has the drugs, and she's holding it close, and she's happy in that moment. We know, watching it, there's no way she's going to live another year or two. That there's no way, you know, it, another couple of months of doing this, she's not going to be pretty enough to be able to go ask to ask for Keith David. But she ends in this kind of place where she can is almost convinced herself that she's happy, at least in that moment. Um, Sarah is so far gone but within that she's so far gone that to her maybe she's completely in this fantasy world where it's you almost wonder if she's in her mind happy because she's in that place whereas Tyrone kind of has it at least from what we see I think almost has it the worst because he's fully aware of what he's going through. I mean, he, he's not going to be getting any drugs anytime soon. And he's stuck in prison in – in where, what state is he in? Georgia. Like, Georgia. I yeah, he's a Georgia. black man yeah. in a Georgian prison. He's – and he's – by this point, you kind of get the feeling that he's coming – he's kind of in uh, withdrawal from the heroin because he's shaking the whole time, he's sweating the whole time. There's something where I – remember the first time I watched this – by the end of it, feeling like my heart going to him the most. And I think watching it now, it's because I feel like he knows how bad he has it right now. And in some ways, he has the least hope because he he doesn't have the ability to actually go to a fantasy world and live there and believe he's there.
2: It's interesting you bring that up about the Sarah character, because that almost reminds me of in if you haven't seen Brazil, plug your ears. <laughs> it reminds me of the uh the ending of Brazil, in mm-hmm. that um people said, Well, it's it's a negative ending. They they tortured him to that point. And it's and you listen to the commentary or you read stuff with Terry Gilliam. He said, No, actually he won because he went to that fantasy place and they couldn't reach him anymore. So it's kind have of the interesting same
6: you,
4: Christmas Evil.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you can kind of see the same thing. I mean, to me, um, I, I sat down and I figured out that there's really like four, that the four characters each have a different version of loss. And Sarah, it's loss of mind, Tyrone's loss of freedom, Marion is loss of self and love. Mm-hmm. And I saw that Harry represented not only the loss of his arm, but the loss of this, you know, striving dream that the idea of, in some way, what is that dream? And I think it's referenced in the book from what I was told, and we'll talk about the book in a little while, that, you know, being the American dream, the idea that you can be an entrepreneur, that you can take something and make something out of it, even if you're dealing drugs, it still goes along with that whole idea of the entrepreneurial spirit. So his, his death is the loss of that idea.
4: Yeah, I could see that. Because there's nothing, you know, it's, and I think a lot of stories and films and tv shows i've seen about drug dealing that's a big thing is well what else am i gonna do and it's not like he has marketable skills uh he is probably also going to prison after this but he's also completely lost marion if he will ever see her again and there's that phone call too that we didn't talk about uh when he calls marion from prison and it's right before she's about to go out to um keith david's and they're both saying I love you. I'm going to be home tonight. I'm going to make it all better. And they both they both don't believe it, but they're both pretending to believe it.
3: Which just seems like it's fitting right into their relationship where they've just been kidding themselves and each other the entire time.
4: Yeah, and it's kind of their last time to do that and they don't end it. She does, you know, she's been Blaming him for everything for so long. The last couple of scenes before that, that we see of the two of them together, they're just, they're against each other. They're fighting over who shouldn't have done the drugs because now there's none left. And so you get this one moment where they're kind of at their least honest with each other when they're trying to be loving again. Hello? Marianne?
6: Harry? Oh,
4: Marianne. I've
6: been thinking about you so much. When you're coming home
0: Soon. When soon You hold out, right? Harry. Can you come today?
6: You all
2: right? And then we get the bookend scene, the very last scene that bookends to the front with uh Tappy coming back again. And this is, like I said, um Sarah's fantasy of what she would want. And she's on TV and she looks great, and her son's there, and he's successful, and and they she gets that, you know, she gets that moment. And the final lines of the film.
7: Please give a juicy welcome to Mrs. Sarah Goldfarb! I'm delighted to tell you that you have just won the grand prize! Now let me tell you what you've won. Your prize is a sweet smile on his own private business. He just got engaged and is about to get married this summer. Will you please give a warm and juicy welcome, Harry Goldfarb! Harry! Juice by Harry! Juice by Harry.
2: reiterate what it is that she really always wanted which was that connection with her son
3: to feel that yeah because what else does she have how the hell did she lose the oscar to aaron god remember that year because people
4: really wanted to see julia roberts up on stage winning an oscar it's
3: it's just not right she was completely robbed with that
4: yeah Everybody has like their Oscar breaking point. Uh, I know for for my husband, it was when Gwyneth Paltrow beat Kate Blanchett for Elizabeth. Um, for me, I still watch the Oscars. I still enjoy them. I still win my betting pools on them. But I feel like this was might have been the thing for me that always kind of turned me, that gave me that new look at it of like, oh, they don't really mean anything because if they meant anything. Ellen Briston would have won.
3: Well, I mean, it would be it'd be something like if, you know, you're having some sort of an award show for like music and you had a heavy metal category and Jethro Tull beat out Metallica or something, <laughs> that would be just you know, that's a silly of an idea.
2: When would that happen? That'd never happen.
3: Yeah. <laughs> never. Let's see. I
2: think the first thing we've got to do is, obviously, like you guys were expecting, is we've got to thank Jethro Tull for not putting out an album this year, right?
3: <laughs> you know the thing I hate about Jethro Tull is when people mistake the name of the band and think that it's named after a guy in the band.
2: Like Pink Floyd? Yeah. Speaking of music... The release of the film when it was put out, it was it did go out NC-17 or unrated, I can't remember which. And then we ended up with the lovely censorship of the marketplace, which was uh, Blockbuster. I'm glad you're out of business, uh-huh. um, forcing an R-rated cut in order to put this thing on the shelves, at least in Blockbuster.
3: Yeah, this was after they had made that decision to take anything that was unrated off of their shelves. I still remember when the memo came down from the top office and was just like, all copies of the Toxic Avenger, and they just had this whole list of movies that were on their hit list. Yeah, of just like, these movies have to go. But it made it nice for me because I just picked up all these movies for like a penny. Like, that's where I got my Blood Feast, Color Me Blood Red, all these kind of films. It's like, okay, great.
4: Well, the best thing about the cut version, because i was looking it up on like some of those compare the different versions websites and one of the things that is cut out of the r-rated version is when they put the condom on the dildo which is amazing because of all the things that because i guess it's because they just don't want to show the dildo as much in the uh r-rated version but like here you have this really great like oh you know again he's a businessman he's really responsible he makes sure that his girls use condoms but not in the R-rated version. And how irresponsible is that a blockbuster video?
2: See, even more skeevy and uh, nasty than uh, if you would have let them have an extra couple seconds.
4: Exactly. And I think, from what I understand, it was kind of Darren Aronofsky was one of the ones who was like, no, you're not editing my film for an R for the theaters. And in part, it's because whatever they would have had to cut out would have made it, not just that, not as powerful as a film, but it also would have taken a little bit away from drugs are really bad, because in the R-rated version, drugs are bad, but they're not as bad as when you see the gigantic double dildo going in. If you want to scare a, a girl off of drugs, you show her that. You don't show her the R-rated version where men are just cheering, because you know some girls want to please men. Very irresponsible.
2: I su- I saw this movie four years out of high school. I graduated in 96. This came out in 2000. And I remember walking out of it and going, they got to show that in high school. Yeah. I'm like, you, you want to scare kids away from hard drugs and yeah. everything that can happen to you? Don't, don't bring in some police officer or some former junkie to you know, give you a lecture. Just show them Requiem for a Dream. that will Show really Jordan Catalano getting
4: them. his arm chopped off. Exactly.
2: There you go. You know, I mean, that'll really do it for you. I mean, that was (laughs) people thought I was crazy when I said that to them. And I go, no, seriously, like (laughs) they should actually show this to high school kids. It would freak them out, but it would also give them something to think about.
4: Yeah, I agree a hundred percent.
2: One thing that Hollywood hasn't uh thought about is the possibility that maybe sometimes when you use a piece of music over and over and over and over again <laughs> uh for another use that it becomes cliche. And um I want to talk about uh Luxe Turner, which is the uh the main theme from dream for a dream used in so many trailers. It's become just about as bad as using Holds the planets, especially Mars, in every sci-fi trailer you've ever seen.
4: Yeah, it's bad.
3: I was looking it up. It looks like it's been used in The Da Vinci Code. I remember Sunshine, Lost, but I'm not sure if that's the TV show or something else. I Am Legend, Babylon AD, Zathura and then it was redone for The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, but that one sounds like it was actually like done with Clint Manziel's permission and participation and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, the, the rest of this kind of commercialization of the song, and just like, that song has very particular meaning to me after seeing the film.
4: <laughs> now, who benefits from that? Like, who's actually... I assume you you have to pay for that, right? Or is it uh, property of the studio? I just wonder that. Like, is somebody at least I, making money from it?
2: I mean, if they're using needle drops, like actually using the original piece of music, um, then I would say Kronos Quartet and Clint Mansell would get paid. If they're reorchestrating it from Clint Mansell, then he only he would get paid. So it just depends <laughs> if they're actually using the needle drop versus a re-recorded version.
3: And I don't know about you guys, but for me, um, the theme song to Torchwood is kind of a rip-off of the Requiem for Dream song of Lux And I actually cut together, I've, I've got it in the Dropbox for you, Rob. I've got the original Torchwood theme, and then a comparison where I slowed down Torchwood and kind of ran it back-to-back with Lux Aterna just because to me... It's like, oh wow, every time I would see Torchwood, when they would have their little title thing come up, I I would immediately think of Requiem for a Dream. And this is before I even saw the movie, but just hearing that the um, string strain used the way that they did, so I'll let other people be the judge.
4: It's. I mean, that's how Vanilla Ice did it, right?
3: Yeah, mine is da 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 da. Not
4: da 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 da. Right. Yeah. Totally different. Totally different.
2: I don't know. Ask Marvin Gaye's family. Maybe they can help you figure it out.
4: I'm sure you both looked at the Wikipedia page for this movie. I want. You could just make some kind of poem based on the different things Wikipedia links within the description for the movie. You know how, like, you're reading a description and they're going to link something like, you know, the actress's name and it's going to link to another page. But they choose the most random things like sedatives and crash diet and racist <laughs> that it makes for just on its own an interesting reading list. Well, that's uh, true. And the other thing that uh, we didn't mention was the token Jennifer Connolly waiting on a dock in a dream sequence moment,
2: which reminded me of Dark City. Every time I see that, um, shot, I'm reminded of that similar shot in Dark yep. City.
4: And I think she might have also had a similar moment in House of Sand and Fog, maybe. I know there's at least one more movie. There's like the hat trick of Jennifer Connelly waiting on a dock. So it was just one of those things that, you know, there's some actors that always get cast as cops or you know, the like, she always get, gets cast as a pretty girl waiting on a dock.
2: Is, is that Otis Redding whistling? <laughs>
4: In the background It would seem
3: So based upon what you said Emily I do want to do a little bit of slam poetry Based mm-hmm. upon the Wikipedia article Written about uh, Requiem for a Dream I'm just going to take a, yeah, a do it. Go right down to the third paragraph here <laughs> Jennifer Connolly, Marlon Wayans Heroin Illegal drug trade Tony Island Post bail. New York City. Miami. Manhattan. Involuntarily committed. Psychiatric ward. Georgia. Electroconvulsive therapy. Racist. Drug withdrawal. Amputated. Sex shows. Fetal position. <laughs>
4: Drop the mic, drop the mic, walk it out, walk it out. <laughs> Sex shows might be my favorite one. Word. Oh, and one more thing. I don't know if you guys went through the deleted scenes, but if you've, if you've ever wanted to see the world's worst Jar Jar Binks impersonation.
2: It's pretty deleted, funny.
4: Yeah, there's a deleted scene where Marlon Wayne does, does Tyrone as Jar Jar Binks, but it's like the ah. worst Jar Jar Binks I've ever seen.
3: Worse than the real Jar Jar Binks?
4: Yeah, he's like a southern Jar Jar Binks. It's weird.
10: <laughs> <laughs> oh, just hope the heat boys! Ooh, because I'm so cold, I want some watermelon.
4: Ooh, that's a melon. Ooh, the spaceship. Ooh, scary in the spaceship. Ooh. I kind of want every movie to have actors do that now. <laughs> Imagine train spotting if everybody was pretending to be Jar Jar
3: Binks. Be Scottish Jar Jar fun. Big B, Spud, yeah, sick boy.
2: We're going to take a break and talk to several actors from the film. You'll hear from Ellen Burstyn, who played Sarah, Christopher McDonald, who played Tappy Tibbins, Keith David, who played Big Tim, and Mark Margolis, who played Mr. Rabinowitz and is also a veteran of many of Darren Aronofsky's films, after these messages.
5: Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The
7: Projection
5: Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, WHMPodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, party, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema, come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies, every Tuesday.
1: For the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much.
11: Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, adamneed.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, A little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com.
1: One dark and stormy night in the mid-80s, Joe Bob Briggs, Harlan Ellison, and the ghost of El Santo pulled a train on Elvira while Siskel and Ebert sobbingly masturbated in the corner. From that union arose the greatest movie critic and luchador that ever lived. We're not going to talk about him. He's kind of a dick. Instead, we're going to talk about me, El Goro, the stuttering movie fan and host of the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. Every week on Talk Without Rhythm, I discuss two to three movies tangentially tied together by a theme. I cover action.
8: And the most complete fighter in the
1: world. Sci-fi. Open the pod bay doors,
9: Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that.
1: Horror. Horror. No tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. And the continuing adventures of James Spader, sexual deviant. You're not worried that I'm going to fuck you, are you? I'm not interested in that, and I'm the least. Now pull up your skirt. So check me out at tworpodcast.blogspot.com, drunkenzombie.com, or subscribe on iTunes. Talk Without Rhythm, the only podcast that will not attract the world. Adios. Christopher Media, The Weedsman Podcast. All right, man, it's time. It's time. Are we, are we ready for the list? The list. So... We all made this list earlier. We sat around. Oh, maybe, yeah. got a, maybe got a little too high well, you making know, this list. <laughs> we, we did get too high because we only made half the list. <laughs> the Weedsman Podcast. Every Friday on iTunes and ChristopherMedia.net. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.
7: Beautiful woman with a winning sense of humor and a magical smile, straight from Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. Let's give a juicy welcome to Mrs. Sarah Goldfar! Juice juice by Sarah! Juice by Sarah! Juice by Sarah! Juice
1: by Sarah Juice! Sarah, Sarah Juice! Sarah juice. Sarah.
3: When I look at your your filmography, another performance that always stands out for me is Requiem for a Dream, and you're slightly or fully mad in that. How do you get into that frame of mind when you are doing a performance?
12: Well, you just enter another reality. You know, that's what madness is. It's just split off from the reality that everybody else has agreed is the real reality. And, it, you know, I've, I've spent some time in mental hospitals um, because I had a, a schizophrenic husband And I saw that people are just in their own reality. They're they're split off. And if you do that, um, if you're playing mad, you can feel what that's like. You can feel what it's like to not see what everybody else is seeing, but see what your alternate reality is and just go with that and let that become more real.
3: I know you said that you were friends with with Bob and his wife and with Jack and Bruce. What was it like actually sitting down and working with these guys on a project?
12: Well, they're great actors, you know. Both of them are great actors. And uh, it was highly creative and imaginative and exciting and unpredictable and inventive. And it was all the things you would want out of a creative experience. What was
3: it like working with Darren Aronofsky?
12: Well, he's brilliant, nice, smart, educated, cultured, inventive, creative, calm, centered, and fun.
3: <laughs> that should cover it. <laughs> <laughs> Any Anything negative there?
12: <laughs> no, really not. I couldn't say one negative thing about Darren. I love him. He's just a... You know, when you're you're working with a genius, it's Clary's a genius. You know, his ideas are so original, and and uh, I mean, when he mounted the camera on my body, facing me, so as I walked through the room, mad, the the camera couldn't possibly be that close to me and walk with me, so perfectly in tune with me, except on me. Nobody's ever done that before. It was
3: wonderful. What did you think when you were approached with that role? Oh, I thought it was the most depressing
12: script I ever read. I said, who wants to go to a movie and see these depressing people? I said to my agent, I don't want to do this. And she said, well, before you turn it down, just look at the movie Pie, his first movie. So I said, okay, and I turned it on, and I watched it, and it was just three or four minutes into the movie. I went, okay, I get it. He's an artist. All right, I'm in. You know, when you work with an artist, that's, there's no such thing as um, depressing or uh, not worthwhile to take the journey with him because they tell the story so creatively that even though it's depressing material, it's an exhilarating experience, not only to make it, but to
3: view it. You really, over the course of your career, you have worked with some of the most cutting edge directors that are out there. I mean, talking about Ravelson and Aronofsky and Nolan, who are some of the people that you look back and say, that was one of the most pleasurable experiences for me?
12: You know, all of the experiences with those guys and with Scorsese, all of all of those experiences are just exhilarating and fun, no matter how hard they are. You know, even with freaking, um, The Exorcist, as difficult and scary and tedious and long as that experience was. It's also why you're an artist of any kind, whether it's an actor or a pianist or a painter. It's the enormous... Um, Oh, ecstasy might be going too high, pollutant. I don't mean that. Pleasure, an enormous pleasure you get from being creative, you know, of having creative ideas and hearing the people you're working with their ideas and meshing them together. So you're you're creating a, a creative team, and it's thrilling. It's fun.
3: I know. I need to let you go. I just want to ask you one more thing you have so many projects that are have yet to come out or just kind of in the nascent stages how do you find the energy in a day to do all of the work that you are still doing
12: (laughs) you know I'm blessed with a lot of energy I've always had a lot and I I I consider it a great gift and I find that the more I do the more I want to do
7: thank you thank you thank you we got a winner, we winner. i said we got, a winner. We, winner. we got a winner we got a winner my first winner is a flight attendant from washington dc please welcome mary kellington Choose mary.
6: Choose mary. Choose
10: mary. how did you get into acting a funny story actually i was uh, you know i dabbled in it in high school my father was sort of the uh the guy that was the principal of the high school, but also loved musicals, so he would direct a lot of my siblings and, and of course, our other cast members, other class members, on the stage. And I was stuck in the pit playing trumpet because I was pretty good as, as a trumpet player. I can hum all the trumpet parts to all these great musicals. I never even thought about doing it until I was in college. And I needed, you know, I was pre med and I was figuring out my schedule. and it was looking for something to get the hell out of the uh, the world of labs and all that kind of clinical stuff and scientific stuff. And I stumbled into the theater and auditioned and the director there just uh, said, yeah, yeah, we're going to use you. This is good. So I got my first play, I think was um, Nick in who's afraid of Virginia Wolf. at my college upstate state New York, Hobart and William Smith college. And I just loved it. And I, made my parents a little angry when I said I'm switching my major and I want to be a, uh, a theater major. Of course, there wasn't any theater major at the school at the time, so I had to become an English major, and I thought I would go ahead and, and, and get a shot. And uh, since my father was a frustrated actor himself, um, uh, he lived to fight, currently, uh, to major all these choices, and he, he was very supportive after he got over the fact that I wasn't going to be a dentist.
3: Do you still keep up on your uh, trumpet studies? I still love
10: it and I listen to it all the time but playing it not so much because it contorts my face so much when I, just, I look at myself I go man you're trying to Dizzy Gillespie to keep this up with my you know cheeks blowing up or something so I, uh, I switched to piano it's a little bit more easy on the old bod I love this, the instrument though it's really beautiful
3: so how did you go from being this uh, English theater major into actually breaking into Hollywood
10: well uh, immediately after college I went to um, become a waiter like we do. I had to pay back those college loans. And, uh, I was working in Boston at the time. And, uh, you know, the place, gorgeous place called top of the hub, which is one of those, you know, landmark places with the view of the whole city, uh, revolving restaurant in, uh, in Boston. And, uh, I was fun and everything, but I thought, nah, I'm going to go and audition for something where I can actually sing. At least I'll swing hash, but I'll be singing or something. And, um, so after about four or five months of that, I, uh, was going to do that, and I got a gig, and then right when I was going to leave, there was this show from off-Broadway. They won the OB that year, and they were replacing a cast member, and I thought, oh, my God, I could do that. So, you know, four or five auditions later, I got that part, and I became a professional actor, and pretty much never looked back. That part was in Nightclub Cantata, which was a crazy guard musical by Liz Swatos, who's a celebrated um, writer director in New York. And that took me to Los Angeles, whereupon I was uh, basically out of luck because the theater we were going to move into was a big hit and had a big hit in it. And we were going to like, you know, drag our feet for three months while they finished their great run. I had to, you know, bloom when I was planted. So I came to Los Angeles and I was... And I thought, you know what I'll do, I'll act at every, every theater in, in Los Angeles, which was a really dumb thing to do when you're in a town, famous for film rather than theater. I've kind of changed my mind. I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go after this stuff. So I started making commercials and and got very lucky. Got my first commercial, like the first time out of, out, of the, out, of the, out of the box there, and it was like, what? Oh, this is fun. So... And I worked really, really hard, because I hated doing commercials so much, I, I uh, worked really, really hard to get conflicts. So if you get your beer, you can't go out for any beer commercials. If you get your soda, or your jeans, or your pizza, or your you know fast food, whatever, you can't go out for other ones. So I got like eight of them, and I just kind of sat back and watched those kids coming in. I was like, oh, this is more money than my father makes. This is crazy. But it was frustrating also, because you, you know, you're not going to do what you want to do, which is basically filming television at a time. Um, I I kept on doing plays and um, basically um, just kind of climbed the ladder that way. I just didn't want to do anything else but but act. And so even though I'm a big guy and I like to eat, I didn't wait tables anymore. I just said, hey, I'll leave your sinkers, wasn't it? And it's uh, worked out pretty
3: well. One of the first movies that you ran in was The Hearse, which is a favorite of mine. They used to show that on the Channel 7 movies uh, quite a bit, um, the 4 o'clock film. At the 4 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> yeah, but it
10: was a great, a lot of fun. I mean, here I was working with Joseph Cotton. Oh, my God, Joseph Cotton. Trish Vandiver. Um, The guy that played my buddy in that movie, his name's Donald Petrie. He went on to become a very big director. Um, and still directs. He's a, a wonderful pal of mine. I was looking to pictures of that film, like just not, not, not a couple of weeks ago. And I'd up a picture of it. It's ridiculous. Through so were children. And I swear to God, maybe I was 24 years old or something like that. But God, I looked young. And, uh, it was fun. And my first line in the movies was, did you get any? <laughs> really? That's the line. So that was it. So my, of course my little brother put that on a t-shirt. And, uh, I wore that around. But I did laugh at it because it's a very funny idea. And that was fun. I mean, it was great. And then the next thing I did was Greece too, which was a... Uh, when I came to town in the late 70s, early 80s, that was that was the thing to do. I mean, Grease was the word. So that was a big thrill to get that. But it took, it took many, many auditions to get that as well. So I would all thought it would be a huge hit. But in hindsight, it's a well-beloved movie. But uh, at the time, it was seen you know, nothing. You can't hold it up to like the $300 million that the first one made. So was considered a non-success.
3: Well, and you got to sing
10: and dance in that one, too. I did, indeed. And what the in- incandescent Michelle Pfeiffer doing her singing and dancing as well, oh, my God, everybody was in love with her. Still am, still am, I should be honest with you. But, uh, yeah, and I'm still pals with a lot of the guys in the show, too, because, it's, you know, you don't forget your first big one, so that was great.
3: Over the years, you've kind of gotten to be known as playing a lot of jerks. Where does that come from? What? How do you think that uh, you kind of became the go to guy for, hey, we need this guy to be a real dick. Let's get Christopher McDonald in here?
10: Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I don't know why. I think maybe because I had a big success with it in Thelma and Louise. The because before that, there was a movie where I was this romantic guy, and it was called Chances Are, and I played Robert Downey Jr., as, and now I died and went to heaven and came back as Robert Downey Jr. And I was opposite Sybil Shepard, and my, my best friend was, was Ryan O'Neill, and it was. And it was Emil Argelino who had just done this big thing called Dirty Dancing. And, and I was this guy who basically had to die on page 23. And so I was romantic. And but, you know, the movie didn't you know they have a lot of traction. So the next thing I do is, um, and, and who makes a lot of noise, is uh, the, the guy you love to hate. And that sort of gets stamped on you. So, of course, you, you know, being an actor who likes to, you know, have all kinds of things in my arsenal, I believe, so they offer you everything that's exactly like that because of the lack of, sometimes, of the uh, of the powers of be. And um, I, I said no for a while until I was like, oh, yeah, i got to pay the mortgage. So I, I basically uh, tried to take a different spin on it, and then things like Kathy Gilmore come along and like, oh, my God, that guy is, you know, he's just a guy you love to hate. so And that movie has got legs. Thank God. So it's my job as an actor not to like to, to try not to do all those parts, but it is great fun because every show needs the uh, needs the bad guy needs the the jerk. And um, hey, I'm happy to do it. I have a lot of fun doing. It. it gives me a lot of carte blanche to go a little crazy, and it's it's fun to do. So I just basically have been embracing that and and trying like crazy to to, to, to uh, you know do the, do the rom coms and things like that. that I think it would be really good at it, But We'll see. Ain't over yet.
3: How was it being Shooter McGavin? What was that uh, role like? Uh, it was a thrill because
10: first of all, all we did was laugh. Uh, between takes on, on, uh, on any movie is a lot of time for for lighting setups, and since we we're outdoors a great deal of time, we're waiting for the sun. So what did we do? We played golf—not not off the T's the, the tees, or the, you know, the, not off the thing, the blues or the blacks. We just you know did our short game just to stay close to the. If it. I want to tell you, my game got on fire, and I was a single digit player at the time. I'm really glad I did it. I wasn't too sure I wanted to do it until I said, if I can sit down with Adam Sama, see where his head is about this thing, I'll, I'll, I'll consider it because I was just i just did another film at the time up there in, uh, in Vancouver. And I thought, pretty wiped out. But uh, I met him and I laughed for 25 minutes. And I thought, I got to do this movie. This guy's hysterical and very smart. The only bad thing on that part is that he's never hired me again
3: because he goes, dude, you're a
10: shooter. Like, yeah, so I've done 100. I can do 100 other things. Well, come on, dude, you're a shooter. So, there it
3: is. Yeah, usually, uh, just once he hires you, he keeps hiring pe- the same people over and over again, you would think.
10: Yeah, you gotta like, uh, I think there's this, I made this decision to move out of town, and I sort of um kind of lost track of that whole world. But I have ran into him a few times. But I've, I've helped celebrate his big successes since then. And, uh, and you know, so I'm just happy for him. And just, it's just I'm not worked out. So, but hopefully that door is still open somewhere.
3: How was it working on Requiem for a Dream?
10: Well, it was a thrill, first of all, because there's this young guy who I'd met at Sundance Film Festival named Darren Aronofsky. And he said, with no guile at all, I am I'm, I'm going to win the best big film. we had Pi at the time. That was his first big film. And I looked at him and I went, now that's confidence. Then I saw Pi. I went, it was pretty freaking amazing. And he sure enough, he won. So the next time I run into him, he says, you'd be really good for this thing. So again, I went in, at Red farm My friend, Mary Benu, was the casting director and, and uh, lo and behold, you know, come do this thing. I only think I worked three and a half or four days, but we went, I went to New York City early. He at that time was living on in, in uh, Hell's Kitchen in a like four-story walk-up. So we meet in his apartment, we go up to the roof and we start doing these things that Tappy Kimmins would do. And Tappy Kimmins was a piece of work. So, um, I thought, wow, this is a, a real interesting spin. So then, then we, he's a very interesting guy and very bright also. And so we did all these kind of like improv things on the roof. And then we went to the streets and went to Broadway. And people would recognize me from a couple of other things I was doing and they, had done. And they would talk to me. They wouldn't know my name, but I would just boom right into the Happy Kevin thing. And, and uh, and he got a lot of, like, real fun footage of, of this guy just walking around who was, uh, you know, the TV infomercial dude and how to change your life and and all that kind of fun stuff. So that's what the experience was like. And it was great working with Bill Allen Burstyn. Brilliant. Uh, he just let me riff on the, in the beginning of the movie, and I was, like, praying to the being God. I said, I, I'm just going to make this stuff up and just run with it. And so uh, I would say I stuck to the script pretty much, but I did go off quite a few, a, a few times also because it's uh, – it just sort of has that has that pace to it. But the classic thing is like, we got a winner. We got a winner. <laughs> Those things became like uh, uh, sort of iconic in, in a way. And that movie just made a lot of lot of noise because, well, because of the great people involved. I mean, everybody was good. Jennifer Connolly was sensationally good. Of course, Jared Leto and Martin Wayans was great. And, uh, but the person I worked with the most was, was Ellen Burstyn and she said I was her first get this. Her first French kiss ever in the movies. So I thought, okay, then. I didn't know what to make of it. I didn't make any comment at the time. I was like, oh, all right then. <laughs> so yeah, and on the set was of course the uh, Henry Selby, uh, who, who this thing was based on in his book. And what an interesting cat he was, oh, my God! So it was just a trip, and and to, to say for the first time I saw it was at the Cannes Film Festival. We were the midnight screening, which is a very prestigious time to do it. I basically sat and watched this thing three seats away from there and I would look over at him two or three times and minute was like, Oh my God, he goes, Oh, he gets better. And he was just, yes, he and then they gave us like this 18 minute, what seemed like a, a week and a half of an, of a ovation. It was crazy. They, the adulation from it was just extraordinary. And here I was a guy over there going to Canada. I'd been there a couple of times, you know, but never with the movie. That, that was gonna open up the so, so I had that, I had my text here because I was going to that thing, but I got myself into more parties just by walking in and waving to people, and walking backward like I knew what I was doing. And then getting up to the main the you know, the main downstream going, Okay, look, I just I basically bluffed my way to this point. So I remember he just said yeah, I'm looking the other way not by it. So I went into like the the major AIDS thing that they were doing when all the all the uh supermodels were coming out with the wings down and there I was sitting like two rows behind Elizabeth Taylor, which is one of those injury moments. Fantastic. But that's the first time I saw it, and it was just an extraordinary experience.
3: When it came to uh, Tappy Tibbins, how did you approach that? Did you model the character on any particular infomercial guy, or did that just all come straight from you? I basically took the
10: script. I had played uh, Jack Barry already in, um, in Robert Redford's Quiz Show. So it was sort of a spin on that, and that's why I think the reason got me in the door, the fact that I kind of knew him, but what got me in the door for the part was because uh, he was sort of he was you know the famous quiz show back in the fifties uh twenty one that was rigged and um it was a pretty important part in that movie and then so he thought I could just do that and just do this like do that thing I would kind of do him on crack so I said, yeah, I could do that so um I just kind of played it as, as full as I could with, uh, with you know, with keeping that, that's, that's the fine line. I, I kind of like to dance along that, that line that is just uh, to the edge of being you know, over the top um, just because the guy was just so, so out there. And, uh, but really doing something good. But yeah, but to answer your question, I think, of course, Tony Robbins was in my head the whole time because that guy has got a mouth on him. <laughs> he's, you know, he says really good stuff at the time still. So I found that I was using him a lot kind of getting that whole kind of enthusiasm he has that he has, you know, it's, uh, it's just really, really uh, helpful for the part. So that's that's kind of how I just
3: developed it. It must have been a little exhausting to maintain that level of energy throughout all of those takes. Well, yeah, it was. At the same time, um, I also was
10: doing a little ad-libbing too, so I was on my toes the entire time and it was an exhausting day too. And then I watched the stuff that the, that the cinematographer was doing, this Maddie Labattini, was doing these things and the refrigerator was dancing around this little set in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm going, "Oh my God, what are we making here? This is crazy!" I just got on the rod and hung on, hung onto that train that was blasting through there, and uh, hopefully held my own. You know, it was just an extraordinary experience.
3: That's a little bit about going out with Aronofsky and shooting the stuff on the rooftops and stuff. When it actually came time to you know do the stuff on the set, what what does he like to work with as a director?
10: Well, he kind of that he's like all good directors, I believe, like this. He just he believes in you, he gives you a lot of confidence, and he says, go for it. And basically, he's a great audience after that. And if he doesn't like something, of course, he'll say something. But if he loves it, he'll never say it. He just kind of like just sit there and, and laugh like the audience. And he's standing off to the side watching the monitors, and we're just going at it. So he just do different camera angles and things like that. But I knew that he was very happy with what I was doing. So. He'd actually break himself up laughing to them. What I like to do here, when you break out of the television and walk around here, laugh at the ceiling, laugh at this dingy apartment. It's disgusting. And you are with Sarah, the real Sarah, the redhead Sarah, looking at the, you know, the original Sarah with this all in her head and stuff. It was just, it was just kind of like working on several different level, levels at once. Very challenging.
3: So, how often do you get asked what the third point in the three-point plan is?
10: Quite a bit, actually. Well a bit. And then he also made like <laughs> he made this these uh, DVD tapes. Because right in the beginning of it, everybody using you know, the internet for all that kind of stuff, so but uh, the secret's out now and the third one. You know, we know you know what the first two are, right? No, we're not. no we're
7: not. Sure that's two things that we talked about. Number three. three oh three. Three. number three. This drives most people crazy. For our listening public out there, the third one is we're not- Are you ready? Are you ready? No orgasms. No
6: No. 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 orgasm.
7: Commit with me. Have that commitment. Have that passion. Thirty days. No No, orgasm. No orgasm. Don't do it. I guarantee you, every one of you has been on this drug of orgasm since you become sexual. Nothing wrong with it. It's 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 difficult to stop. I'm not saying that's a bad thing to come. I'm not saying that. All. It's a great thing, to go, right? Am I right? Yeah. It's a great thing. Oh. Have you ever told your body no? No. Have you ever had it listen? I want commitment!
10: Which means keep your seed to yourself. That gives you that kind of drive. It gives you that kind of, like, you know, like boxers do that and people that are on the edge, they, they have to, like, have... They have to, like... Actors uh, believe it back in, the day, back in the day that we get the second and and we just, like, let their... Keep their semen in their body and it would never be expelled because it was uh, just a way to make them more virile or something. I don't know, but it was kind of funny.
3: Was that all scripted? In
10: fact, it was. Yes, it was.
3: Yeah, I love how the audience reacts when you drop that on them too. Yeah, <laughs> 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 yeah, they're all dying to know. But I guess that maybe came from Hubert Hubert W's book, right?
10: Or did it? I should I should know that answer.
3: I am halfway through his book right now, and you have yet to show up, and I'm just like, "Where is he? Where is he?" <laughs> that's Interesting yeah.
10: I think it was most about drugs, and I think that's what uh, that's what Darren did. He just brought this whole thing that I was the drug, of course, of Sarah Goldfarb, that was wanted more than anything was to be on the TV, and um, of course Henry, Harry Goldfarb and, and, and uh, Jennifer and Marlon That that was all like serious, 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 serious heroin drug smack. Anything you get their hands on. And one good thing, interesting thing about that movie is that yes, it's about it's almost an anti-drug movie if you look at it the right way. I think you get to see these people who that just destroyed their lives, and it's almost have to turn away. It's just so disgusting sometimes the depths to which the people will go to get that fixed, get that high. And every character just went down this, this hole of oh my god, the worst. And then you get the, the shot of, of Jared Leto's arm. Oh my God, it's horrible! <laughs> I was uh, Sarah Goldfarb's drug. I don't know how it is in the book. It's been so long since I even, even dabbled in that whole thing, so it hasn't even come up yet. That huh? yeah, was maybe Darren's idea of how to lure her into the world of uh, being on the TV to get this charismatic uh, maniac to uh, to pull her into the, the game show world, the self help world. Yeah, it was a pretty wild day, man. We she just went went crazy and. Uh, but I thought a performed A and B, I thought she was robbed that year, she should have won the Academy Award. She was just phenomenal, really. She just went there. So brilliant. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't, a, it was a modest budget, little independent film, but just goes to show you, and I, I've taken that lesson with me in the sense that uh, you just give it your all. You give
3: 120% every time you're out there. That's why she's so bloody good just the level of actors that are in that film. I mean, everybody that is in it is somebody or should be somebody, and just, you know, it, it is uh, amazing to see that caliber of performances from everyone involved. Yeah, everybody,
10: everybody gets 100%. Even Louise Lasser, who I loved, it was it was terrific in it. He had his own mom, in uh, Darren Get his own mom as one of the, uh, the ladies, and of course, Keith Davis, my pal, Dylan Baker, and just a it's, a it's a very interesting a uh, bunch of people, no question about it. Everybody brought their, their A game.
3: You mentioned that Selby was on set. What was he like?
10: Very quiet, but very interesting once you got him alone kind of a thing. He was uh you know, he was not a young man at the time and uh, he's even in the movie, of course he, he's playing the the guard at the end while he's well, that's incarcerated sitting on the big line. That's him. He's just uh he just this sort of um twisted <laughs> Um, interesting old man is what he was when I first my take on him. He's just really, I didn't talk to him too much, but when I did, I just really,
3: really found him fascinating. You did a music video a few years ago with uh, Peter Gabriel where you played a talk show host. How was the Barry Williams show to do? Well, it was a trip because Sean Penn was directing it. So he calls me up and he goes, Chris, I want
10: you to be in this music, this, this music video. And I said, who's the artist? And then, Miss, miss, what was it called? What's the name of that album that was on? It was called Mephistopoli. That's it. it's a hard word to say, but but that was a trip. I didn't meet Peter Gabriel. to hang out down there. It was like, oh, my God. So it was a trip. It was a beautiful and I was there from, from all the, you know, designing and what they were doing and all the all the people that were involved, and we shot at the studio in Clover City, and it was, it was really a, a, a ride. We had a lot of fun, and then we were... <laughs> I mean, he just took a really dark side, and, and, you know. And, and of course, you know, being Sean Penn and being that kind of visionary he is in, in his acting and his directing, I think, yeah. He said, no, you're just going to go through the roof. You're going to get an MTV award for this. It's fantastic, all that kind of stuff. But um, it still holds up. It's a great song. And, um, I mean, we literally were swimming in blood. Oh, it wasn't blood. It was, you know, colored water, but it was kind of colored water with, like, paint in it at some point. It's like... Just the the gross thing. So I'm trying to you know keep it keep it light between sets, and I started doing this dance thing because the music he's playing music and stuff. Playing that song, I started dancing to it and it slipped right on my ass on because I was stepping in that mud in that blood blood mud fixture, and I just whoops, you the what no, wardrobe thing. And then then the actual interesting thing is the guy actually his name is Barry Williams, the actor from Brady Bunch, shows up at uh, at uh, Sean's request. And, uh, and he sits in the audience, and that was another little, like, kind of gag for the Barry Williams show, and there's Barry Williams in the audience.
3: You've done a lot of uh, voice work over the last few years. I mean, you're one of the few people I can think of who's done both Clark Kent and Harvey Dent. Yes, indeed, yes. How has it been to work uh, to uh, do the voice work?
10: I really enjoy the vo- voice work. Um, my first big stab at it was um, a classic film that Brad Bird who won, a, won the Academy Award for his animation and direction. Brilliant guy, very, very smart. And he uh, fought for me to be this voice, you know, because all the studios go, oh, he's not, you know, he's not big enough, he's not you enough. we need to get, uh, you know, Bruce Willis or something. He said, no, 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 I really want, I want, I want this distinct voice. And that was really interesting, because it was a really interesting and a classic movie. So I take my kids to this movie and... They're laughing and having enjoying it called Iron Giant and they're enjoying the heck out of it and then I look over and they're crying, these big dollops of tears coming down their face, and I'm like, oh, look at the reaction of these kids And I was sitting behind Peter Townsend, who was also executive producer, because he owned the story, I believe, that was the story of the Iron Giant. And you know, and Brad turned it into this iconically uh, classic story. About you know about beliefs and about good versus evil and everything like that. So, you know, cartoon characters are hard to do. Again, I'm, I'm I'm down that vein of playing the bad guy, playing the jerk, Ted Mansley, you know, working for the government. But recently, I've been keep, I keep on doing it because I really enjoy it. It's it's basically, it's basically uh, your imagination is going through the roof. You're, you're looking at little sketch figures, but what you're what you're voicing. And I just want to do a different take on Superman, because here I was playing Jarrell first. Then I got a chance to play Superman. Then I got a chance to play Harvey Dent. And, you know, you can just go oh, really, really crazy and low and nuts and that kind of thing. And, um, and then you have to be this you know, politician on the other side. So it's, it's a very interesting dynamic, and, and I had a lot of fun doing that. And I hope to continue doing it. I got to do uh you know, kind of a bucket list thing. I I spent four and a half months this last uh two thousand fourteen doing a western in Mexico, Durango, Mexico, uh, for the History Channel, a miniseries called Texas Rising, which is the beginning of Texas as a Republic, right after the Alamo and it leads up to the great fight in San Jacinto where we're against General General Santa Ana. And uh, so I'm I'm the captain of the very young group of men called the Texas Rangers, basically scouts and uh, territory men who knew, knew the territory better than anybody, and and would ride really fast horses and go out and chase the joint, and then come back and give every you know details. And then it's a, it's a base, of course, based on the true story. It is the History Channel, and it is going to be a big deal. It opens up in um, gosh Memorial Day weekend. 2015, so whatever it is that? Something middle of May, I guess. And it's fantastic, and I've seen it because it, it was directed by a brilliant auteur, a missionary named Nolan Joffe, who did the mission. And it was 109 characters. I mean, we had people like Bill Paxton playing Santa Ana, and we had Ray Liotta playing this psychopath guy who was on a death mission, playing Lorca, who was a old Indian name for Indian name for a uh, a guy who was you know, wreaking revenge it was all about vengeance. Very scary character. Just so many great actors in it. You know, Just wonderful, wonderful time. I had lots of times in the saddle. I mean, we're, I rode every day for you know, six days a week. So I got really good at that. I mean, you got to pick a good horse. I mean, I went through four. I thought I had one. I mean, he's like, oh, he's perfect. I, I dyed my hair red because the guy I play is Henry Carnes. and he's a famously red-headed man. i was going to know that until they look it up, but... I and that's one of the hardest things in the world to do. I, I normally have brownish hair, and to dye your hair red is no picnic. So I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. But uh, but we grew our hair long. We grew our facial hair. We rode in these horses all day long, and it was just a uh, just a dream. The only thing is that I just hope it, it may go to series, and if it goes to series, maybe it'll jump a few years till we get to the actual six gun, because these muskets we had to shoot. I mean, no wonder we took arrows, because you get one bullet, you got to be a dead eye shot. To take the time to put the powder in, to put the ball in, to mush it down, and that to, uh, took two minutes. So I mean, the heat of battle, it doesn't uh, doesn't do very well. But um, ultimately, we of course, uh, Texas uh, was made Texas, and um, we beat the uh, Mexicans, and um, it's a pretty pretty extraordinary story, and uh, that's very thrilling. And then um, before that, I have a great golf movie coming out. Golf and gambling go together. They're a, a the thing that's been happening since the beginning of the game, I think people have always put money on the holes and, uh, you know, a dollar a hole, whatever, $50 a hole or, you know, get the Michael Jordan about, you know, $3,000 a hole. <laughs> it's crazy. But, um, but a lot of the golf pros, uh, throughout the years, have started out doing a lot of gambling and, and probably still do in their retirement years. Um, golf and gambling, they go, go together. So this movie's called the squeeze. And it's based on a gambler, myself, picking up this kid I was driving across to Vegas, you know, driving across Texas. And I meet. I don't meet this kid. I, I hear about him on the radio. He beats his own record. He beats the course record, then beats his own record in the afternoon. 18 holes I golf, and I go, this guy's unbelievable. Show up, and he's this kid. He's like this 20-year-old kid. I go, oh, my God. I can make some money with this kid. So I lure him, and it's based on a true story, which is the best thing about it. It was told to the director, Terry Jastro, who has for 20 years been the ABC golf guy who's directing all those golf, um, you know, wine sports things. He's, he knows golf inside and out. So he found this kid uh, named Jeremy Sumter, who was a brilliant golfer and a very, very good actor. And he's a real golfer. So when you cut, to an actor, like, you know, swing at a club or, you know, getting there. You, you get somebody else and you cut to the hole and then, you know, somebody, you know, drops the ball. No, this guy's a golfer. So um, that part of it's really great. True story based on this guy Keith Flatt's life when he was pulled to Vegas and uh, he got into these big, big, big money matches and to the point where it becomes life and death. So it becomes a thriller at the end and it's um, quite an interesting story. And uh, I can't spoil it, but it's a really good golf movie because the golf is genuine and the fact that it's a true story and then the character I played was delicious. It was based on Teutonic Thompson who was a very, very famous uh, gambler slash gangster in the 30s and 40s with role to play. And that comes out
3: on April 17th. You've been in almost 200 movies and TV shows by now. What are some yeah. of the ones that have kind of slipped through the cracks that you say, you know, you really need to check this out. This is some of the work that I'm really proud of. Oh gosh, there's a lot of them.
10: But I say, if I have 10 hits out of the 200, is it's, uh, it's a lot because uh, hits are hard to come by. And um, since I do love the work so much, um, everybody goes out and you never know what's going to be a hit or not. So, There's a lot of really good movies that um, never make it to that uh, level, whether the studio drops the ball in the advertising and prints and ads and all that stuff just to push the movie, or if it just doesn't get seen, doesn't have enough money to get the push behind it. But many of the movies I've done, people have seen it on, you know, thank God for four o'clock movies in the middle of the night, or, uh, you know, on cable and all the great stuff. And people go, I saw you in a movie. Oh my God. You were amazing. Your car blew up. You didn't want your son to watch it. And you were burning lies. And it was unbelievable. And then sometimes they'll say things like, so you were the guy that was killing the other guy. And I said, yeah, I've done that a few times. Which one was it? <laughs> what was that wedding? Who else was in it? <laughs> so it's kind of stuff like that. So um, I did a, a very, very interesting um it's a cheesy title. It's called Fatal Instinct. I like, had this really interesting character in a uh, movie of the week that I loved. It's with Mayor Winningham and um, Nick Mancuso. It was called Fatal Instinct. And I was a murderer in it, of course. Uh, you know, you know you're, I'm 6'3". I'm not going to play the, the leading man guy or play the leading man guy because I'm too freaking tall. You know, Tom, Tom Cruise is not going to have a guy around that's that tall. I'm going to be the bad guy. So if you want to work, you're the bad guy. But this one was delicious because he had a, um uh, his name was Robert Parker. And he, along the it's only other Western kind of thing, I think I've done, but he, um, when he killed people, he would leave a telltale thing where he put the shells from this cold 45 on their body. And, um, and he was just, uh, he was out for revenge and vengeance everywhere he could get it, but he was such a delicious character and the director was really good. As, he just let me kind of rip into it and just, uh, ad lib here and there. And I just had a, I had a fun thing was a cop stopping me on a cliff and I'm looking for the other guy to come through. And I want to take my, you know, sharps Buffalo rifle who can shoot like 3000 yards away and hit people. It's a very famous rifle. And I was setting that up and I get pulled, I get, I get stopped by this cop who comes up and I just have this whole thing there. And I say, draw, they can just let me go off and come on and bring it, draw you come on. Right and, and he left it in the movie. It's terrific. It's just one of those, you know, really fun things. But I've got a lot of those. I mean, a lot of times I've just kind of like, um, been blessed with really good directors and kind of letting you riff a little bit, which is fun. Because it's really not about the lines. It's about the, it's about the action. You know, an actor's act it's just the acting that, 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 that really makes it fun. It's between the lines that really makes it fun. And, uh, so I try to find the action of the guy. And that was just a perfect fit in that perfect example that, uh, Really, really made a jump off the page. It was
3: good. I really liked you in Best of the Best Three. I thought that you were terrific in that film. Wow, thank you. That's what I did right <laughs> I had gotten this
10: great movie. I was going to star opposite Arnold Schwarzenegger in a movie about the Crusades, directed by Paul Verhoeven. So this guy was as twisted as they come. And I just kind of like relish that kind of stuff. And I went in and I read for it and I got the part basically right there. And I was thrilled that we're going to do this movie. It was going to be a $15 million movie about, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Lo and behold, um, another movie comes out and um from the same company and does no business. I won't name the name of that because my friends are in it. But um, so they canceled the movie and, Oh, my God, what a part it would have been. So they gave, you know, Arnold, they gave him a chance. And you know, I think they gave him $10 million. And I said, sorry, we're not going to make the Crusades. And it was going to be a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant thing. But uh, but then again, that's what happened. So after that, I sat down with the director and he told me, yeah, he told me, well, I don't know. I'm just going to jump in this movie called Showgirls. So and I said, well, that's not distinct, you know. He goes, I don't know, but I'm going to do it. And I said, yeah, I'll do the same thing. So I, I went and did a movie called Best of the Best Three done by the, my um, Taekwondo teacher, Philip Ray, who was a brilliant teacher. And he would kick, and talk about getting in shape. You want to be really good, just 70% kicking and all that kind of stuff. I just got ripped through this guy. But uh, like years before, he said, Chris, I'm doing this movie. Would you like to come along? And I'll never turn it down, but I think, it's, uh, I think it goes around and comes around. If I ever ask somebody to do it, I don't want them to jump on, on board as well. So I had a blast doing it. It's a fun movie. It's all about, you know, Mark Ralston was the bad guy in that one. I was the good guy, for once. Uh cop, and we, we got these skinheads. <laughs> got them in line. But it was a lot of fun to do, and it was uh, something I had to do, jump into work right away after this uh, tremendous letdown of not working with Paul Verhoeven and Arnold Schwarzenegger in, in the Crusade movie. And I don't think they ever made it. No, I'm sure they never made it, but uh, oh well. There you go.
3: No, it's funny. I was just talking the other day about how many movies Arnold was attached to. Like, there was a Planet of the Apes remake that Oliver Stone was going to do, and he was supposed to be the lead, and he was supposed to be an I Am Legend years and years ago, too. So, how many films he's attached to? Well, that's amazing. I think they, he's,
10: a, he's a smart guy, too. And I
3: think it's, he's like pay or play, and then they go, oh, we're not going to make
10: it, and so he gets a nice big payday anyway.
3: That's, that's good living. You were also in one of my most favorite episodes of Star Trek the Next Generation.
10: Ah yes, I did one episode of that uh, that great series and uh, it turned out to be one of the you know, one of the great ones um, uh, of that series because it, it involved a wormhole and the time continued switching because um uh, I got to go as a as a lieutenant. I got to go and, and become like captain of a ship that was basically Captain Kirk, but captain captain at the time. So that was really fun, and uh, had a great relationship with Tasha Yar, played by Denise Crosby. And, and um, the director went on to, to direct a lot of a lot of the show. This is his first one. But the funny thing about them was like the character's name was Ricardo Castillo. And you can't you can't wipe the Irish on my off of my face very easily And I think. Ricardo Castillo, what the hell am I going to for this for? But I'm mean, here, yeah. I'm gonna do the best shot I can. And he liked what I did so much, and then they just changed the name to Richard Christie or something like that. And, and now it's, um, I get a lot of, uh, of fan mail because of that particular episode. So people seem to really love it.
3: Yeah, I kind of wish that they had gone back to the Enterprise C after that episode, just because that was such a powerful one.
10: Yeah, it really was, and I think they should have. And I actually met the guy who wrote it. And funnily enough, he's a, he's a, uh, he was a fraternity brother of mine. He's a writer at a Cornell University. And I went to another school. I'm sitting here going, a whole white one Smith, and it's like here he was right down there. How's that for a small world?
9: Marion.
8: Well, uh, what do you know? Made Marion. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I'm Little John. Can you tell me, were you in The Disco Godfather?
8: Uh, you know, I cannot tell you that. Because sometimes, you know, movies do
3: change names and
8: stuff, and I know that I'm credited with being in The Disco Godfather, but I've never seen it, so I couldn't really tell.
3: (laughs) (laughs) All right, fair enough, fair enough. Um, How did you come to be in the role of uh, Childs in The Thing?
8: Like like everybody else, I auditioned for it. And... um, From my understanding, I'm happy that um, uh, Roger, Roger, I can't think of Roger's last name right this second, but Roger was, uh, I think it was between he and I, and then he got Magnum P.I., and uh, that opened the door for me to get the same.
3: Oh, was it uh, Roger, is it Mosley?
8: Roger Mosley, yeah.
3: Okay. And uh, there's there's still debate all these years later whether you were an alien or not at the end of the film. What are your thoughts on that? It wasn't me, all right, the once and for all, you settled the debate,
8: yeah, I mean, you know, I, as far as I remember, we both played it as if it wasn't us, you know, and uh, and if we knew and if if it was, we wouldn't know it until until we were attacked because that's how the thing revealed itself. It would never reveal itself out of ego, it would only reveal itself if its life was threatened, so if it was me, I wouldn't have known it, he wouldn't have known it. There was time enough for either one of us to have been gotten, but since uh, there was no immediate life threatening situation, we wouldn't know. You
3: know, people have read so much into the end of that film whether your breath is showing versus uh, Kurt Russell's and all this. So it's just kind of this crazy debate online. It's really funny.
8: I think that's funny because that just might have been his nature because there's no reason why he would have been any, or I would have been any warmer than him. We're both in the same atmosphere and the same. You know, so I, I I didn't, I can't say that I noticed that when I saw the film and it's been many years since I've seen the film. So perhaps the next time it's on, I'll look for that particular phenomenon. <laughs> yeah,
3: you know, one film of yours that I really enjoyed was Men at Work. How was that uh, working with both Charlie Sheen and Emilio Estevez?
8: I had the time of my life. It was fantastic because I'd always, you know, I, I think I can be funny. <laughs> so <laughs> I, uh, it was my first time to get a chance to be funny on screen. You know, I've done stuff on stage, but never on screen. So that was the first time I got to be, you know, some comedy. So that was great. I had a great
3: time. When you uh, got the character of, uh, in Requiem for a Dream, you know, he's, he's a nice guy, but he's also such a manipulator. How did you approach the character?
8: Like a businessman, you know. I mean, uh, he was based on a real guy. I remember, I remember the... Uh, reading at least part of a book by Donald Goines that the character was based on. And he's a businessman. I mean, mean, part of of, uh, my even wanting to do it was, you know, I I had made a decision in my life that I wasn't going to play black man as drug dealer pimp uh, just so. I mean, the the black exploitation days were over, and I wasn't just going to fulfill those fantasies of white people who don't know that we can do anything else. Uh, however, he fascinated me because he wasn't just a, a guy selling nickel bags on the corner. He was selling heroin and cocaine whatever to your doctor, to your lawyer, and to your stockbrook. And it was an interesting thing to be brought out to me that, you know, usually in the movies or anywhere else, when you see guys doing drugs, they usually, you know, get us nice little heavy anti thieves or whatever. But these, I mean, these guys, he, I mean, he was a way of life that was being brought to you about guys, you know, these, these people who they work and, but this is what they work for. They work to get enough money to get enough drugs to stay high most of the time. But these are not the only people who get high. Your mother gets high on, on uh, diet pills and her friends as they sit out and they sit out in the summertime sun, you know, talking trash. And, and so does your stockbroker, your, your banker, your lawyer, and all those guys. So I thought it was, a, it was a, you know, a fascinating sort of full circle of life of how drugs have infiltrated our culture and continues to.
3: What was it like working with uh, Darren Aronofsky? It was wonderful.
8: I mean, he's a really wonderful filmmaker. And I think one thing about Requiem is, I mean, the storytelling is phenomenal. And it's a, it's a, it's a hell of a story. I mean, because those people do exist in our society. And that's how that's how drug culture has so infiltrated our society that they have people who, you know, they have they think that they that that's what life is about. All I want to do is get high. I make enough money to get high to buy my drugs. I get high for a period of time when I run out. They don't care about eating, sleeping and anything else. You know, that's what they live for. And that you know, that's you know, to a greater or lesser degree, now that's you know, they in the movie that was the extreme part of it. But some some uh, portion of that idea, you know, goes, runs, that, that, the threat of that idea runs through a large part of our society. We have many, many young people, whether it's living for the weekend to smoke a joint, uh, to, you know, getting strung out on any number of, you know, new drugs that they have out here. Uh, we can go into a whole political discussion, discussion about <laughs> why, you know, how, you know, why drugs have become such a part of our structure. Uh, but... I mean, they, you know, in, the, in the 20s and 30s, cocaine, there was, you know, almost everybody in the country was addicted to cocaine because it was in everything, Coca-Cola and, uh, and uh, cough medicine. It was part of, it was part of everything. And then, you know, it was delegalized, and so, you know, you had to find other, other ways of, of, of getting it. But, you know, drugs have been part of American society for a very, very, very long time.
3: Had you ever known anybody like uh big Tim in before you played the character
8: as a matter of fact, I knew yeah, I knew a couple of guys who and they, and, and very few i mean what, one of the things again that fascinated me about him is here's a guy who's smart enough to you know like they like like he, like a uh you know you know you you can't you can't deal and use at the same time because it it's not a good combination, it's not a good business. Big Tim didn't use. Mm -hmm. I knew a few guys like him who were smart enough in in those days to get in and get out. Made big, big money, uh, never got arrested, and got out in time enough to, you know, get get that big house on Long Island for their family and put some money in the bank, get out of the business, and lead a nice, quiet, legal life after that. Few and far between. You know, I don't know a whole lot of guys like that, but I did know one or two
3: one of the things I'm always so impressed with, with Wrecking for a Dream is just the caliber of the cast. It seems like everybody is firing on all cylinders with that film. What was it like for you working with those folks?
8: Uh, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I, I was, it was really, it's really a wonderful experience. When everybody is on the same page, everybody is doing their best, bringing, bringing their A game. And, uh, and that was my experience on Rhythm. I mean I don't I don't I don't think it was a bad performance. I think in fact it was they were all, you know, pretty magnificent performances. I was I was uh, I felt privileged to be amongst those people.
3: What are some of the other films that you've worked on where it feels like everybody is there to play, you know, you're all reading from the same playbook?
8: Um, well I just finished doing uh The Nice Guys with the Russell Crowe, and uh about fifteen years since I worked with Russell, and, and uh, we did *The Quick and the Dead* together. And you know, and the, and *Back the Quick and the Dead* was was one was one of those movies that I felt I was I was in the company of extraordinary men. Uh, you know, and and Sharon, I mean, uh, but you know the men on the film Lance Heinrichson,
3: um Woody Strode, um, you know, uh, Gene Hackman. I'm sure was Gene Hackman. I mean, all those guys. I mean, it was.
8: It was. I mean, I, I was. I was. You know, I was in, the, in in Hall of Heaven because here I am surrounded by guys who are like my heroes, and you know, these I have deep respect for them, and I don't. You know, I mean, the the uh, if there's any if there's any uh, like too bad in that movie, it's that we all didn't have more to do. You know that. You know there was it. It, it wasn't. Uh, you know. You know some 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 more stuff wasn't given us to do. But you know, I mean it. You know, that is what it is. You know, uh, the movie is written, and, and we get to play whatever's on the page. But I had a fantastic time with
3: it. Yeah, I, I really would have liked to have seen just a whole movie of Sergeant Cantrell. He was such a fascinating character.
8: Yeah, I mean, I I, really, I, I appreciate that. I mean, I I loved playing that. And I based, him, I based him on a guy, a real guy, the first black Texas Ranger called Baz Reeds. And who's a fantastic character and I'd love to play him someday in a movie about him.
3: It was a really nice callback to have Woody Strode in there.
8: Oh my God. Woody's like one of my great heroes and I got I got not only to be on the set with him, but I got to hang out with him and we talked I learned a lot of stuff about him at front of the point. You know, I mean Woody is a I mean, to me that's the man. You know, he, 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 he uh set a lot of trends. I happen to be another a friend of uh another a friend of his who used to be his roommate and he told me some great stories about Woody and uh, and uh and, and that same man, another really great man in this industry, his name is Ike Jones. He used to be uh Nat Cole's producer for the last fifteen years of his life and uh that fifteen years of Nat's life. And
3: uh
8: he I and mean, then had some great stories about both of those men. So I guess uh you know, I you know, treasure that.
3: I imagine, yeah. I mean, actually
8: getting to meet and hang out with Woody was, man, that was, uh, that was a gift from God.
3: What are you working on these days? I am doing a show called Community,
8: and I'm getting, you know, that call that came in while I was talking to you was my stage manager telling me that they had pushed my call two hours, so I'm getting ready to leave. <laughs> oh,
3: very nice. <laughs> yeah, that, it's... I'm so glad the community is having another chance. You know, it's it's great that. Um, yeah, you know, is it uh, Hulu or Yahoo that's picking community Yahoo. up? <laughs> Yahoo, that is terrific.
8: I'm grateful for the opportunity. Actually, very grateful, and so looking forward to. You know, you know, we don't know whether this will be their last season or not, or or if uh, it will merit another season. You know, either way, either way, I'm I'm glad to be there.
3: Well, I asked for twenty minutes. It's I think nineteen, so I, I really appreciate your time, sir.
8: Amen. No worries. Glad to talk to you
9: Such a son a gun if your mother needs you like a moose needs a hat right?
5: I like doing pie a lot I, at the time I mean because it was such an interesting. Uh, piece. Though at the time we did Pi in 1998, I almost didn't know what a computer was all about. I didn't have a computer until about 2006. So uh, when I was talking about the guy, the young guy's computer crashing, I hardly knew what that meant. I mean, it was explained to me, but I didn't really grasp it. So, Though I sound very smart in it.
3: Uh, that's uh, all that matters isn't it yeah
5: and there's a movie again that got lost that was done in about two or three weeks by um, Bob Giraldi who's famous for doing commercials called Dinner Rush Uh, it it all takes place in a restaurant in one night Uh, Danny Aiello's in it and a few other well-known people and the movie's marvelous and I had a great part in it a lot of it was improvised um, unfortunately, he had it scheduled to open uh, in movie theaters a couple weeks after 9-11 happened. The, he scheduled that before, but instead of holding back, he went and released it. No one was going to the movies at that time. It has a very big following nowadays, uh, people who saw it on television or uh, 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 on t- either on TV or, or they had a DVD of it, and they're all. I've never run into anybody that didn't think it was terrific. And I had worked as when I was younger as a waiter in restaurants, so uh, I could connect with what was going on in it. Also, I played an art gallery owner in it, and I had worked in art galleries, so both sides of it appealed to me. And what else? I don't know what else. Uh, there's a lot of them. A lot of them I don't like. Um, I like doing, there was a film with um, Robin Williams that we did in Poland and Hungary. A lot of good actors like Liev Schreiber and Alan Arkin and uh, on and on, uh, called Jacob the Liar. Uh, it was badly directed. It didn't come out too well, but I loved doing it. And I, I still think it's a half-decent movie. I don't know what what else. I don't remember what I did. <laughs> <laughs> You've been kind of a good luck charm for Darren Aronofsky. That's what he thinks, so he puts me in everything. Supposedly, I'm even in Black Swan because I had a tiny scene in it that was meaningless. He created it just to put me in it where I kiss her hand at some fundraiser. But when he started cutting, it was an unnecessary scene, so that went the way of the other stuff. It got cut out, And, and if you look real quick... There's a crowd scene where you can see me in a tuxedo turning my head but I don't say a word. But I have a big credit on in the film also. And then in Noah, I'm a 12 foot uh computer generated uh fallen angel. So it ain't me. It's it's uh it's uh, some those characters called the, the watchers who are made out of stone. Did you see okay. Noah? Yeah. So yeah, and I I don't know, because I've been with him since Pi, that's why, and I'm the only actor that's been in all of his films, though the parts have gotten smaller as the years went by, except for the only one where I had a really decent part was The Fountain, where I played the priest, and I mentioned to you the one you wanted to ask about, uh, Requiem for a Dream, which is a terrific movie, and I'm a big fan of that writer. He wrote a book years ago, Hubert Selby wrote a book called Last Exit to Brooklyn that we were all crazy about in the 1960s, a bunch of short stories. Um, I only have two scenes as that secondhand dealer in uh,
3: Requiem for a Dream. What is uh, Aronofsky's directing style? I mean, you've worked with so many different directors. How does he kind of, is he similar to anybody that you've worked with, or is he a completely different animal? Turn off the recorder.
5: All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're going to get me in trouble. I, you know, they say he's a genius. And he, what, what I love about Aronofsky has nothing to do with me. I've always thought he was marvelous because of the way he cuts a film, even though he uses people that edit with him. Um, there's a scene in Pi where the young guy, um, what was it? My, my character was Saul. Oh, he was Max. Uh, Sean Gallette, who isn't even really an actor. He was uh, a guy who published a computer magazine. He was a friend of uh, uh, Darren's. And he wasn't a mathematician. Uh, Darren said he could hardly add two and two. Darren's the mathematician. But there's a scene where Max is on a subway, and you know, he's obsessed with the stock market and finding patterns in pie so he can beat the stock market. He's sitting on a subway train and he looks across and there's this weird guy who's also been in a lot of Aronofsky's films, an older man, who's reading the New York Times. And what he sees when he looks at him is the guy's holding up the paper and you can see the stock pages on the back. And he's he's burning to see what the results for today are. So he goes over and grabs the paper out of the guy's hand and then runs off the train. Uh, When it finally stops, Aronofsky never shows you the guy's reaction. Every other director in the world would give you a reaction shot. And the guy who the paper was taken from, was he angry? Was he scared? Was he amused? And Darren doesn't show you that because it has nothing to do with what's really going on. It doesn't matter what the guy thought. So I like where he does that. He does these, he, he goes from, he cuts in a way where he goes from step one to step five without two, three, and four. But in terms of his style, he often says to me, you know how we do things. And I always say, no, I don't know. How do we do things? Um, the best thing a director can do is give you a doable action. Like um, uh, if 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 they said, uh, I once had a director in a TV show. And there was this woman prosecuting me. I was in a courtroom, and the direct and I was a businessman who was accused of burning down his own factory and i I was defending myself and the director said to me, "They don't always I, I often don't get any direction. I usually know what I'm doing pretty well." but this director said, "Listen, I need you to do it stronger. What I want you to do is teach her what business is about you know, see." To teach someone is a doable thing, you follow? It's not wishy-washy. It's not like lower your voice, raise your voice, talk faster, talk slower. That makes no sense. But anything that's doable is what I love in a director. Whenever I get something that's doable, I'm real happy if the guy gives me direction. But I mean, I enjoy what he does, Darren. he, he, he chooses to do very unusual things. He turns down things that he could make zillions of dollars doing. Uh, there have been a couple of those big, what they call, blockbuster-type films that he's passed on. I think like uh, he passed on a Wolverine or something and some other big ones because he, he does what he wants to do and loves to do, not what will make him a lot of money or what will be popular. Noah was not nominated for anything in this year's Academy Awards, uh, yet it had a lot of people. It made over uh, $300 million worldwide. I think it made about
3: $350 million. Yeah, it was a gorgeous film. His films are always just, uh, maybe it's that editing, it, they're so hypnotic.
5: He has Maddie Labatique as the cinematographer uh, on everything but The Wrestler, um, and the cinematography is quite terrific to help yeah, but he, he he's got weird ways of doing things. I always also love that a lot of his films, he's constantly into eyeballs ever since Pi. They're always looking at an eyeball. I think it, it, in in, uh, in uh, Black Swan, there was a lot of eyeball stuff.
3: Yeah, I think even the poster for Requiem is a big eyeball. Yeah, yeah,
5: because they were into speed, which I played with in the 60s. <laughs> 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 Got
3: well, yeah. Who didn't, right? Right.
5: <laughs> but listen, if I said anything negative about I call him Darren and It's easier than Darren and it's quite a mouthful. But, by the way, Aronofsky, with, I was the only one that was paid for pie. Really? Yeah, and I got next to very little money because he had no money, 60000 thousand And and I needed the money um, at that time. I thought I did. And he, I like to get paid when somebody says they're going to pay me. He kept bullshitting me and telling me, well, the check's in the mail. We're sending the check. We're getting the check. You'll get the check. I never got the check. Like a month and a half, two months went by. His mother had been craft services on the film. That's the lady. She's got a little table where there are snacks from actors. And I, I spent a lot of time talking to her. I know his parents well now from all the films. Uh, after three months of hearing bullshit, I threatened to call his mother to tell her <laughs> that he wasn't. And that's when I got the money. <laughs> so help that's when he sent the money. Now I don't know. I always wondered would I threaten to call Spielberg's mother if he didn't call if he didn't pay me. I don't know. <laughs> but if there's like terrible negatives about Darren, um,
3: they'll go uh, on the cutting room floor.
5: Yeah. Well, I don't really. I don't know if I care anymore because sometimes <laughs> he's pissed me off a couple of times. <laughs> when we were doing when we were doing um the fountain we were in we were up did it in Montreal It was like twenty below zero, even though some of the scenes were tropical. We were in an ancient factory building that was about a half a mile long an abandoned factory. It was freezing cold in there. They built the whole tropical forest and when I discovered the Mayan pyramid that holds the tree of life it starts raining, and they had a a water truck there to spray water. And and it was not only cold, the air was cold, the water that was coming down on me was ice cold. And and I I muttered over my, my body, Mike, when I was laying in the mud, I said, would it really kill you to get a water truck with some warm water? So when we continued the scene the next day, there was all of a sudden warm water coming from the tanker truck. Somebody had heard me and I said, Darren, that was very nice of you to finally give me some weird, some warm water. He said, I would never have spent the fucking money on it. Somebody else did it. <laughs> we have that kind of a relationship. He's kind of, he likes to fuck with me, but he claims to love me. He's been nice to me. And, um, yeah he's both a genius and at times a turkey but cuz i know him too long
3: Back, and we're talking about Requiem for Dream. Thanks to Mr. Margolis, Mr. David, Mr. McDonald, and Ms. Burstyn for being on the show. You can hear the first part of our interview with Ellen on our recent King of Marvin Gardens episode. So, me being me, I read the book of Requiem for Dream, and I have to say, not an easy book to read. If anybody knows me, they know I am a Grammar and punctuation Nazi, and there is very little punctuation used in Requiem for a Dream. Uh, and the it, it just flows like I haven't seen a physical copy of the book, and I would like to get my hands on a physical copy because I kept thinking maybe something was wrong with the uh, electronic version of this book that I got because it just all. ...runs together. There are breaks, there are paragraph breaks, there are section breaks here and there, but for the most part you're reading what character 1 is saying, what character 2 is saying, what character 1 is saying, what character 3 is saying, what character 1 is saying, description of what's going on, character 1, character 2, description, character 3, character 1... No breaks in between, no quotation marks, nothing to say who is saying what. It just runs together. And then, yeah, there's very few apostrophes. So every time you come to any sort of like contraction, you get sometimes a slash, sometimes no slash, sometimes it's just run together. What do they do about
4: possessives? Is it nothing?
3: Oh, no, (sighs) no, no. It's just, it's just there.
2: I read up on this, because I didn't read the book, but I read up on Hubert Selby Jr., and it said that he. some people consider him in with the beats, and they said that a lot of his stuff was like Kerouac, where Kerouac would put this long roll into the typewriter and just bash it out, and and he did the same thing where it was almost like he was just saying it as he typed and he didn't really care about any of that stuff. So he didn't bother to go back and put any of that stuff in because it just sort of like flowed out of him as he was doing it. So I guess you're not big into this sort of like a freeform automatic writing kind of thing.
3: Well, I'll tell you, once I would get into it, I could really get the rhythm and I could figure out who was saying what, which was very interesting to me that I could actually – Figure that stuff out. I wasn't really confused as I was doing it, except when I would put the book down and then come back to it later on. Trying to get back into that rhythm was always just a real struggle for me to get to that point. But once I got in there,
4: is it each kind of narrator rotating?
3: No, it's more third person. It's more, you're, you are an observer and Harry says something, then Tyrone says something, then Harry says something. And of course, well, Tyrone is using a thick kind of black scent that he Mm -hmm. is writing out in there. But then Harry is using kind of the same accent and then, you know, just this street speak and then the slang and all this kind of stuff written what came out in 78 I think so you have that kind of era that you have to peel through as well and then when it comes to Sarah you kind of get the mix of like some uh, Yiddish words in with the other stuff which is fine I can read Yiddish that's absolutely fine but just just trying to sort through and I, I have to say you really capture the voices of these characters in your head but it was just very difficult to get into and then also it just it offended me a little bit on the whole punctuation thing but I, I managed to get over it but man it was uh it was a little bit of a slog at first especially those first few pages when I didn't know what the hell was going on I was just like my mind was bleeding like how am I going to read this book but you know I made it through blindness I could make it through I was this. just
4: about to say it's that's the experience I had with blindness where it took once I realized how it was written where you don't have character names and you don't have quotations It was, okay, now I just have to pay attention to the. I I can't be doing anything else when I read this book.
2: Well, beyond the structural aspects, how does it stack in terms of uh, plot and ideas against the adaptation of the film? Considering that uh, Selby was uh, a co-screenwriter on this with Aronofsky.
3: Uh, They did... It's... uh... Very, 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 very similar. Um, There are a couple moments uh, that are very different. Like The biggest thing is Tappy Tibbins is not in the book. You get that moment where the audience comes out of the television and the host of the television show comes out, this unnamed host, and they're laughing at her, but you don't necessarily get... Sarah's dream, as far as her making out with Tappy and all this kind of stuff, that's not in there. And that just takes like, it's just like a paragraph somewhere around the middle of the book. It's a, like, if it's 300 pages, it's around 143, something like that. So that aspect of it is missing. Funnily enough, you don't get the ass to ass scene. You what? get, I know, you get. Big Tim talking about her coming over for a party, and then you get the aftermath of the party, her home the next day kind of thing. In this, she's really doing this whole thing where she'll go over to Big Tim's, he'll give her eight bags of drugs, she'll sneak two home in her cooch, and then give the other six to Tyrone and... uh and Jared Leto and Harry and basically they cut it up into three so she gets four bags and then they get two apiece. She earned it though. I so, would say. Yeah. So she's, she's stocking up on the drugs as she's doing this and she goes over to Big Tim's a lot. It's not just like two or three times it's many, many times. And she has quite a stockpile going. The trip down to Florida is definitely played out longer. It kind of reminds me a little bit of like, um, uh, midnight cowboy kind of thing, but really as far as the beats of the story and the cutting between Sarah and the other characters, it's right there. And so obviously having Selby involved with the adaptation, I think is what, kept a lot of the structure and it sounds like you know aronofsky was a fan of the book and and when it came to selby's other work like last uh last exit to brooklyn it sounds like that kind of lit a lot of people's heads on fire so they did a really good job of the adaptation what i found funny though was did you guys pick up when i asked keith david about the the film he brought up Donald Goines because he said that the book was based that the film was based on a book by Donald Goines, and which obviously isn't true. But it's funny where Keith's head went to because then I went out and I looked up Donald Goines and I've been reading Dope Fiend, which was Goines' first book. Uh, Goines is a Detroit writer, a fellow Detroit writer. There
0: you
12: go.
3: And yeah, uh, he wrote this book back in seventy one. And it is so it's interesting to read because it is, you know, bringing up all the Detroit stuff like they just uh, went over to Westgate and were ripping off this store before hopping back onto the freeway and going over to Grand River and all this kind of stuff. So it's interesting. So always interesting to read a book that's set in your hometown kind of thing. Um, but it it's written in a much more traditional style. So you do have quotation marks. You do have punctuation, all this kind of stuff really beautifully written book this was his first book which is amazing to me i highly recommend it and it shows that same kind of uh degradation the the um people you know just kind of fucking each other over for their next fix i mean there's two main characters in it it's uh terry and oh god Terry and Teddy, and they're a couple to begin with, and then they drift apart, And especially as there's another character named Porky, this drug dealer, who really just wants to basically get into Terry's pants, and he's giving her more and more pure drugs and getting her more and more strung out, and it's just like her... It's her circling the drain, and Teddy as well, but it's really kind of more Terry's story. And just, uh, you know, she works in a very prominent department store downtown, Rob, which I imagine to be Hudson's, the way that they talk about it. But they never say it by name, but yeah, highly, highly recommend Dope Fiend if folks want to check out something as a companion piece this is the one to do.
2: When he mentioned that, do you think that he was seeing that drug dealer character as sort of the basis for the big Tim character in some way or something?
3: I can kind of see that. Yeah. The porky character. I mean, Keith, David's a very handsome man. Very suave. Suave. God damn. You're one suave fucker. Fucking, fucking suave, man. Fucking suave. And, Porky is not suave whatsoever. He is just, he's an animal, like, thus the name. But I can really see where maybe David kind of uh, based some of his character on this idea of this guy wanting to turn this girl out. So, yeah, I can see where he maybe, especially, you know, he probably had read it years ago or something, but I can see where he might have pulled some of the material, some of the inspiration from Porky and from Dope Fiend.
4: I'm intrigued. I'm going to put it on my reading list.
3: Your ever-growing reading my ever list? My ever-growing
4: book list. <laughs> I still get like the real books that have a cover and are made on paper.
3: This one was a paper book. This one is great. It's got some awesome artwork on it. And it's got the number one black author in America kind of, you know, sticker on it. Nice. So it's pretty oh, good. that, that, that yeah. gets me
4: street cred when I take the bus in the Bronx. That's good.
3: Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yep.
4: Very important. <laughs>
2: So looking across from those books and then to Requiem for a Dream, the film, and then looking at other movies... I mean, I guess you guys kind of already brought up one earlier, which would be train spotting, and that was 1996. So, uh, those, I mean, that obviously has a different uh, thing going on. I, I don't find train spotting to be all that, uh, that, that's not one I would show to the kids at school, and go, here, this will scare them out of heroin. Actually, no, I actually think at times it may, they may actually find it kind of, uh, you know, like, hey, those Scottish guys are kind of having fun on heroin.
3: First two acts are great. No problem. There you go.
4: Yeah, and it goes that up and stupid down. And baby rough. dies. Yeah, yeah. Where I think, like you, you walk away from train spotting, remembering some of the more fun stuff, and you, you kind of remember the dead baby, but you've done a lot to think about other things. So
3: I always think of Owen McGregor running along. You got the Iggy Pop going and everything, and then he almost gets hit by the car, and that still frame on him. You know, it's just like, yeah, this is great. It's the Hard Day's Night opening. As I, oh yeah, to it. yeah. Sign me up, man. Give me some of that H. <laughs> I got a couple good veins waiting right here, baby.
2: I like train spotting. I read the book too. Um that's one of those where uh I think they put a glossary in the American version so that you can figure out some of the words. For me it wasn't that hard to read because my mother's from Scotland, so I knew a lot of the slang. I had just never seen it written out. So after like the first chapter of like reading it out loud i could figure out the rest of the book so it wasn't too that's bad. that's
3: what i've heard i've heard you got to read that one out loud it's kind of like clockwork orange where it helps to read it out loud
2: yeah because it's all through context of what's around it that you can figure out what the words mean if you've never heard them before other drug films i mean even going back to older ones about addiction i mean like the man with the golden arm things like that
3: which i've never seen neither
2: frank sinatra I've
3: seen lost weekend
2: lost weekend yes Ray Milland as a drunk, yeah. Um, Naked
4: Lunch is more. I was thinking Naked Lunch, but I feel like that's more about drugs and not about addiction.
3: Right. Yeah.
4: Uh, a really good film about addiction. Um, a very different film is Down to the Bone by Is it Deborah Granick who did Winter's Bone uh, with Vera Farmiga?
3: Does she put bone in the title she of all of her films? She apparently can
4: only make movies with bone. Yes. All right. It's just remake, one of those conditions.
3: She's going to remake Monkey Bone.
4: <gasps> or. We're, it's time. Or,
3: We're due. Yes. Or Bone with Yafet koto
4: Or bone with Snoop Dogg. Mm. Mm-hmm. But Down Roll to the, the Bone bones. Is, is a good... It's very much about this one woman who is trying to deal with her cocaine addiction. But it's Vera Farmiga, so it's amazing because she's Vera Farmiga.
3: I really like the film Spun. Though, again, I think that's more drugs are fun for the most part then drugs are bad okay
6: now as i was saying uh, drugs are
9: bad you shouldn't do drugs Uh, if you do them you're bad because drugs are bad okay it's a bad thing to do drugs so so don't be bad by doing drugs Okay, that'd be bad drugs are bad
4: uh i have i have an out there recommend that every time i say it people usually then never believe anything I say again. Um, But a film that is actually a good film about addiction and how it deals with addiction is a comedy. One of the forgotten Saturday night live turned movies movie. And that would be Stuart saves his family with Al Frank Mm. and Vincent D'Onofrio.
3: Nothing wrong with that.
4: Because it is very much about a family who all kind of have Different issues where Vincent and D'Onofrio and the dad are alcoholics, uh, but the mother and sister are f- kind of addicted to overeating and more more overcooking than overeating. It's there those women that can't control anything else, so they just always make food, and always push it on you, and always eat it. Uh, and it's very much about Stewart trying to kind of help his family and fight through it, but it really is about kind of hopeless in a lot of ways. And as much as it is, you know. It, Probably dated in a bit and maybe not as funny as I ever thought it was. The actual family dynamic and addiction aspect of it is uh, is pretty good.
3: Of course, we'll be talking about a classic, or maybe not so classic yet, drug film of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas in, what is that, July.
2: That's right, July. We'll have our uh, Fear and Loathing in the Projection booth where we look at the adaptations based on the Hunter S. Thompson books.
3: And I have done another favorite drug film of mine, I believe I did this over on um, Badass's Boobs and Body Counts, Avenging Disco Godfather, where they are all about attacking the whack. Where is Bucky? And what has he had?
4: I am ashamed that I have not seen this movie.
2: Oh, uh, uh, I'm,
4: I'm about we're to not start... Allowed beating myself with a dildo in a condom.
2: You are not so, allowed back into the projection booth until yeah. you watch Disco Godfather. Oh, that's fair. I'm, that's,
4: I, I'm not allowed to <laughs> house until I've seen that.
3: Yeah, you should definitely check that out immediately.
2: From a drama standpoint, and this is more about uh, recovery and uh, AA, there was a movie back in the late 90s called Drunks, which had uh, Callista Flockhart and uh, Richard Lewis and Richard Lewis in a very dramatic role and he does a very nice job in there and it's about a support group for um people in AA and it's uh, quite well done
4: um and another good if you're on if we're talking alcoholism uh, another good alcoholism movie would be Once for Warriors the New Zealand film which is devastating i mean just yeah. takes your heart rips it out takes a giant dildo and finds a hole it didn't have and rips it out again uh that is a a devastating movie but it's so good and again i think it's it's a good film about you know in this case it's alcohol and how it's you know destroys this man and therefore his family
2: i would also throw on the pile with that one uh alcoholism uh leaving las vegas
3: yeah not one i go back to very often Mm -hmm. No, and that one's pretty harrowing too. Though Xander Berkeley gives an amazing performance in that one.
4: He's always good, Xander
3: Berkeley. Yeah, yes. He
4: He's one of those yes, like is. little, like kind of secret weapons of a lot of things. He's on twelve cookies mm-hmm. now, and every time he shows up, it's like, oh yeah, all right.
3: Oh, I haven't gotten to him yet. I'm still just on the the Tom Noonan thing.
4: Oh, okay, okay. There's a couple right. of cool uh, Steve McHaddy shows up soon.
3: Mm. Yeah. Cool. They're
4: they're tapping a good pool of character actors.
3: Yeah, I hope that we don't get a whole bunch of like, well, you forgot about this one, you forgot about that one kind of thing. Because <laughs> we're not just gonna sit here and list off drug movies for the next five hours because I'm looking at that list of drug films from the Wikipedia thing. <laughs> it goes on forever. Because it lists every single I mean it's got fucking zapped here for marijuana use so yeah it's all over the place and so on yeah exactly the fun drugs and the not so fun drugs
2: why don't we loop back to requiem for a dream anything uh left to say that we haven't said yet
3: if you haven't seen it i'd say butch up and do it but make
4: sure you do it when you're gonna sit down turn the lights out yeah you know Really, you can't half watch this. No, yeah, and it's and you're not going to want to do anything afterwards when it is over. You are going to want to brush your teeth and go to sleep and never do heroin in your life.
3: I don't even know if you want to go to sleep, man. You might want to have a good, good book to read or something to just take your mind off of it. Eat a
4: grapefruit and have some black coffee
2: (laughs) and a hard boiled egg
4: and a hard boiled egg. You're going to do what the book said to do and not anything else.
3: I'm going to do what my refrigerator tells me to do. All that, too.
2: It is one of those movies that um, when you see it, and if it takes you where it's supposed to take you, you'll feel like you've just been wrung out like a dish rag. You're just going to be like, ugh, there's nothing left.
4: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. My husband had never seen it, and I watched it with him the other night, and it was over. He was completely quiet. So I'm like, oh, so what'd you think? And he said, he's like, I never want to watch it again. I'm like, I think that's exactly what he was going for.
2: See, but the question is, do you never want to watch it again because it's terrible or because it did what it was supposed to do and therefore you don't need to see it again? Or like I said about Solo, it's a movie I can watch like every 10 years because I don't need Mm -hmm. to live with it. You know, it's like, like I've said about certain paintings. I go to the museum and I see this painting and it's shocking and horrifying. I don't want that over my couch, but I'm glad I can go see it every so often and I can have that experience and then i can you know go back to my life
4: well and with this one too i think it has because it it's i would compare it to breaking the waves is random movie that comes to mind is a movie that i don't know that i ever do want to watch again because it is so i mean it just rips you out whereas with requiem for a dream i can see myself revisiting it for the technique and to really watch it in a few years And like you were saying Just listen to it And kind of really observe What the, the filmmaking in it And be, I think also for me Because I don't have drug problems And it's not as necessarily Emotionally wrenching to me I can, I can watch it at a distance But I can understand anybody Just getting the experience And saying okay I get it I will never do heroin Or, or diet pills Or TV. Or TV. Or my psychiatrist. I mean...
9: (laughs) We're going to
2: take another break and play a preview for next
9: week's show. Just imagine a world where you will hold your entire future in the palm of your hand. When a tiny glowing crystal will guide you through an existence in which each day is more wonderful than the last. Where it will be possible for you to obtain the fulfillment of every fantasy. The satisfaction of every vanity... The absolute attainment of every wish. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer presents the Saul David production of Logan's Run. A fantastic journey through a world beyond imagination. Welcome to the 23rd century. The perfect world of total pleasure. Imagine a world in which you need never be alone. You touch a switch, turn a dial, and the perfect lover steps into your arms. Every pleasure is yours to experience. Runner! There's just one catch. When the tiny crystal in the palm of your hand flashes its final message, your time is up. Michael York is Logan. Run Logan! Policeman in a perfect world. No! Trained to track down runners. <laughs> run Logan! Until he is forced to run himself. Run,
0: Logan! He's a runner!
1: Logan! I'm your friend, I understand. We all go crazy once in a while. But she's a runner,
9: and it's over. Over well, well, am I not? Box, an incredible being, more than human, more than machine, diabolical guardian of the gateway to freedom, or Logan and the woman who loves him. face like that that must be the look of of being old mgm takes you into a new age of adventure in the first motion picture of the 23rd century logan's run it begins where imagination ends
3: That's right. We're back to the future next week with the final post-apocalyptic film in our recent series, Logan's Run. We had to take a little break from the post-apocalyptic films and do something fun like Requiem for a Dream. We'll be joined by our friend Eric Cohen of the Cinephiles podcast. But before we go, I want to thank this week's special co-host, Emily Intravia from The Feminine Critique. What's been happening in your world and your show lately?
4: Uh, In my world, there has not been heroin use, thankfully. Uh, but there has been. I do a podcast called The Feminine Critique with the lovely Christine Makepeace. We are just about to celebrate our 50th episode. Uh, it took us a little long to get there, so on our 50th, we're going to actually just cover our favorite, our 50 favorite films. So it will be should be a good kind of uh, introduction to who we are as film fans. Uh, our last episode was Flashdance and Magic Mike for those who like stripping or you know welding. Um and before that we did um a sh- episode that I'm sure you've done night of the comet we did night of the comet and um coherence with that. Uh so we do a variety of things um and you know we put episodes out so it's always good to listen. Uh and then on the other end of my world I write I keep a blog called uh the uh, I can't even remember the URL dot com, where I mostly cover horror movies but also the occasional uh talking animal movie whatever really fits.
3: Including a talking cat? Talking
4: cat. You know, I did an entire month of animals doing hum- human stuff where I was doing uh, Monkey Trouble and an Airbuds movie. And I just only covered movies about animals talking and playing sports, like Ed, the Matt LeBlanc movie. I covered that. And I did so many of these movies. Over the course of a month that I actually Did get burned out and right when I Finished was when a talking cat Came on Netflix and by then I just couldn't even Do it Ah. I like I it finally Beat me it defeated me I wasn't strong Enough for a talking cat
3: Oh, When are you going to go back to it can you can you recover enough?
4: I can get there. I can get there. I think okay. I need a little more of a palate cleanser. I need to watch a couple of more like monkey movies because those always make me happy. I just watched Kongo. Amy. I think that's pretty extra gorilla. Yeah. Yes. And it, that's all you need. Give me give me a chimpanzee drinking a martini, and then we'll get back to a talking cat.
3: You have to see. Oh God, I can't even remember the name of it. Taylor Negron was in it, and it's a. French film about a chimpanzee super spy. Oh god, and it's just amazing because I don't even think they used a real chimp in it at all. It is just a little person in a chimp costume that looks terrible.
4: I feel like I've seen Taylor Negron in a talking in a talking animals movie. I wonder if it's the same one or not. He might have just had a, a run where he was doing these
3: movies. I, I don't think it talks, though. So I think it's along the lines of like MVP, most valuable right, primate. Right, right. Yeah.
4: Okay. I, I, uh, Funky Monkey?
3: That could be it.
4: Oh, you know, I, had, I think it is. I had Funky Monkey on my Netflix queue, and I was really angry that I couldn't get it in time.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Matthew
4: Modine also. We're Godfrey. Some good stuff. That, okay. Well,. T- Logan's Run? Who needs Logan's Run? You guys are covering Funky Monkey next week. <laughs>
3: Change of plans.
4: Exactly. Reroute. Reroute.
3: Let me call Eric right now.
4: The movie poster, <laughs> it's a monkey, and he's spinning a football on his finger, and he's wearing sunglasses and an earpiece.
3: He's very funky. I
4: mean, I don't know how you cannot stop everything and, and deal with this right now.
3: I wrote a review of it a few years ago.
4: Is it everything that I think it is and more?
3: And more. Okay, yes. I'm in the A whole lot more. French-American co-production thing. Just makes it even weirder I than bet. it should be. Yeah, nice.
4: Oh, well, thank you for having me. It was an honor.
2: Thanks again, Emily. And thanks to our guests, Ellen Burstyn, Christopher McDonald, Keith David, and Mark Margolis. You can find out more about them and the film at our website, projection-booth.com. And while you're there, feel free to leave us some feedback. And if you enjoy the show, and obviously you do because you're listening this far, I would say that's a big yes. Head over to iTunes or wherever you get your quality podcasts, such as the Projection Booth, and leave us a review. Five stars. That'd be awesome. Because, you know, we're kind of addicts for that stuff. We just love that. And uh, so, uh, guys, if you don't mind, uh, I'm going to head out, and um, I'm going to work on the uh, three-point plan from Tappy Tibbins.
3: Oh, you're not going to like that third step.
2: Nobody likes it.
3: Drive <laughs> <laughs> drives people absolutely crazy. Oh, you're not going to like it. You're not going to like it. You're not going to like it. Not going to like it. <laughs> <laughs>
6: For being such a bastard. I want to make it up. I mean I mean I know I can't change anything that's happened but but I want you to know that that I love you and that I'm sorry and I want you to be happy. So I got your brand new TV set. it's going to be delivered in a couple of days. It's from Macy's. Oh. <laughs>